0: Hi, I'm
1: Jen. I'm Serena. And I'm Ed. And you're listening to Every Romcom, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedy seriously.
2: This week on Every Romcom, we're finishing the Gen X romcom series with a look at Kevin Smith's third film, Chasing Amy.
0: We'll discuss the film's surprising origin story and Smith's return to his indie filmmaking roots.
1: We'll talk about the film's comic book milieu and the rise of comic book and nerd culture. And we'll share our thoughts on the film's depiction of friendship, romance, and sexual
2: orientation as we dive into 1997's Chasing Amy.
1: Hey Serena, welcome back. Hey Jen, it's been a while. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. You were here at the beginning of the Gen X rom-com series, and now you're here at the end of the Gen X rom-com <laughs> series. It feels kind of right to me. I don't know.
2: Well, I did. I did just turn 40, and I, I'm going to reiterate this. I still feel like I'm a old, a very old millennial.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think technically you are, but that's okay. Millennials that's are fine. allowed to comment on the Gen X rom-com series as well. <laughs> Thank you. So Thank you. There you go. I appreciate that. So today, we also have a special guest with us, the host of a podcast that I personally listen to and really like, Ed Kennard from The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly. Sung Poorly, for short, covers all things karaoke, hosts some very interesting guests, and there's a trivia segment for those of you who like a challenge on each episode. Ed co-hosts the podcast with his longtime friend, Adam Wainwright, and they're both very passionate and knowledgeable about karaoke. So we're going to spend a few minutes now talking to Ed about his podcast, about karaoke, and about his love of rom-coms. But first, here's a short promo for The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly.
0: I'm Adam Wainwright. And I'm Ed Kennard, And we're the hosts of The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly, the podcast that takes karaoke exactly as seriously as it should be taken. No interview was complete without our quick fire game where we ask everyone the same five questions, culminating in the most important question we could ever ask. If you could magically strike one song from every karaoke playlist forever, which
3: song would you choose?
1: Don't Stop believin'.
3: Oh, Ice Ice Baby. Great, just cause that song needs to be destroyed
0: for all time.
1: Easy Lover by Phil Collins.
0: I think Picture. Picture is just a song of love and heartbreak. Uh, and it just, it ruins nights. I want to say "Sweet Caroline.
3: Probably My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion.
0: Only one? Only one. Um, can I can
3: I pick one band? So hey, if you love karaoke, have sang karaoke, been in a place where karaoke
0: was happening, or are vaguely aware that something called karaoke exists, come hang out with us. All episodes and info are available at sungpoorly.com. And remember that singing off key is still technically singing.
1: Yay. <laughs> So yeah, I've, I found um, your podcast, Ed, when I was like looking in some kind of Facebook group about podcasts, and I'm like, oh my God, there's a podcast about karaoke. I was so excited. And then I like completely bugged you about being a guest on your show when I didn't even know you yet. And yeah, now I have been a guest on your show as well. And just um, one of those questions podcasters always get asked, like, how did you come up with the idea for the show? What made you want to do a podcast on karaoke?
0: Not surprisingly, it was a pandemic project. The pandemic prevented karaoke from happening safely, and Adam and I really missed it. Adam also moved a good chunk of distance away from me, and it was a good way for us to uh, reconnect and talk about the thing that we love and that we torture all of our friends in person by talking about incessantly. We figured we might as well do a podcast about it.
1: Yeah, and it's it's amazing. Like I don't know if there's a lot of similar podcasts out there. It's certainly none that I'd seen before. And when did you actually start doing karaoke? Like at what age?
0: Technically, I started doing it in high school when I was able to sneak into a resort bar when I worked at a resort and they would serve me. So I absolutely did karaoke then. But I, I didn't really get into it into it until Adam and I became friends about 15 years ago. And he invited me to karaoke and we just never stopped.
2: I'm not a karaoke person. I, I never have been. Um so I don't really know much about it, but when I was listening to the your podcast, Ed, um, I do love trivia. <laughs> so I was like really into the the trivia questions and and that kind of stuff. So um, and trivia about music. I'm for some reason kind of like a, I guess a nerd for lack of a better word when it comes to music trivia. Anyway,
0: Thanks. Uh, yeah. uh, we uh, we we initially started doing that with just questions that we had found online, and I was like. No, we, we need to actually write our own questions. And I think that makes it a little harder and a little bit more challenging. We both know each other's areas of strength and weakness, and we will attack it
1: sometimes. (laughs) Although sometimes the things that you guys think are difficult, I like, there was a question about dirty dancing that I guess Adam didn't (laughs) get right. And I was like, how did Adam not get that? (laughs) 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 Sorry, Adam. (laughs) So after I was like geeking out over your podcast on karaoke, like I think separately you were geeked out on my podcast about rom-coms because I don't think you remembered that I was a weird girl who messaged you to be a guest on your show. Um, but yeah, you really like rom-coms too, which is not every guy says openly. When did you start or when did that start or how did, where did that come from?
0: I have no idea where or when it started. I worked at a video store in high school, so I watched a lot of movies. And it just always connected with me. I am somebody who's not ashamed to uh, cry in front of people. In fact, the only ex who I'm not still friends with is the only one who uh, made fun of me for crying at romantic comedies. But I just it's such a important part of the human experience, love, humor. And how could you not love that kind of thing?
1: Yes, very, very true. (laughs) Like, I wish I'd said something like that in our first episode. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any favorite romantic comedies, like a top three or just like a couple that you really like?
0: Top threes are so hard, Jen. But if you press me right now in this exact moment in time. The Thin Man, the original one with William Powell and Myrna Loy from the 30s. Uh, that's my go-to comfort food movie. It's a romantic comedy slash mystery slash. I don't know what else to say about it, but it's a fantastic movie. And in fact, the first episode of yours that I listened to was the one on Bell Book and Candle because I'm a classic movies guy. Aside from that, I'm super charmed by Hugh Grant. So I'm going to say that the other two are Notting Hill and Love Actually.
1: Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You probably like Sybil and Serena were begging on love actually quite a bit on our episode (laughs) on that. We were, we were, I don't know if you listened to that one, but we had a lot of fun with that. (laughs) Yeah. Those are good choices. I think though. And like, I really, I haven't seen the thin man yet, so I got to get to that. So Ed, if people want to learn more about your podcast, where can they find your work?
0: The best place is probably the website sungpoorly.com. We post every episode there. We have a blog where I am currently singing my way through Time Out Magazine's top 50 karaoke songs of all time. Two mixed results, (laughs) but I'm starting from number 50, which was Adele, and it's going all the way to the top, which I will get to eventually, which is Prince's Purple Rain.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, at least that's not the most difficult Prince song one could sing, at least.
0: It's not, but it's certainly out of my natural singing range, my default... My default print songs are Sexy MF
1: Mm-mm, and yeah.
0: another one that I don't know if I can say the title of on this podcast. You
1: can say the title of absolutely any song on this podcast.
0: So my go-to print songs are Sexy MF and Pussy Control when it comes to Prince,
1: Yeah, those I've never tried to sing Pussy Control, so I don't even know how that would go. But yeah. <laughs> but even Raspberry Beret has secret hidden uh, difficulties in it. So for people, for the unwary, I recommend against prints. So we'll also include links to the Greatest Song Ever sung Poorly website and social media sites in our show notes, as well as some information about Ed. So don't forget to check those out. There's always a lot of good information in there.
2: So before we get started with today's episode, just a reminder, as usual on the show, we'll have a spoiler-free section at the
1: beginning of the episode, and we'll let you know when the spoiler section begins. And we'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media, our Facebook page is every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at every Pod. As always, you can find the podcast
2: at everyromcom.com, send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And now let's listen to the trailer for Chasing Amy.
3: What a long face, Horace. I'm just having a little girl trouble. Pressing charges? I get that a lot. Holden McNeil was setting his ways. The way he worked. The way he lived. And the way he thought love should be. But then, she showed up. Let me guess. You like her. This girl loves me. There's something you should know. She got a boyfriend. Well, no. Then what's to know, my friend? And this girl's got a secret that's going to drive him crazy. I like you, Holden. I'd really like us to be friends. what I tell you? She just needs the right guy. What's up? And if you come pick me up, I'll be your best friend. Now, the only thing standing in Holden's way is the truth. I can't take this can't take what i love you not in a friendly way that was your pseudo date okay i'm telling you she's never even been with a guy you're dating a guy so what if it is true you know you have no shot at hitting her into bed i take it that's not good Miramax Films presents a comedy that tells it like it feels. She's been around and seen things we've only read about in books. So what'd you do last night? Got lucky. Chasing Amy.
1: So I don't think the trailer's that great. What do you guys think? It's very upbeat. <laughs> and
2: I just watched it last night. Again, I haven't seen it in 25 years probably when it came out. But it it's a lot darker than I remembered it being.
0: The trailer seems like it's for an entirely different movie. It sounds like it's a madcap comedy that's gonna be full of laughs. And it certainly it certainly has laughs, but it is not the kind of movie that the trailer presents.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like it doesn't get any of the emotion and the heart and like the and the struggle that goes on in this movie, the inner inner struggles that people have and like and and the music itself too. Like like the music from the movie, the theme music, the no, 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 I can't really do it justice. pretty good. <laughs> do, 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 do. You know, like the kind of soft murmuring no- uh, music, yeah. right? It's um, completely different mood, yeah. And and oh, and how it starts with the with the J line about girls pressing charges, I'm like, oh.
0: <laughs> especially because it's a Miramax movie.
1: Oh yeah, that too. Mm-hmm. All right, so Chasing Amy
2: came out 25 years ago, um, almost to the date today, uh, April 4th, 1997. It's written and directed by Kevin Smith, starring Ben Affleck, Joey Lauren Adams, and Jason Lee.
0: Here's the basic premise of the movie Holden and Banky are best friends who work together on a comic called Blunt Man and Chronic. At a comic book convention, Their friend Hooper introduces them to a female comic creator, Alyssa Jones, and Holden immediately falls for her. Alyssa invites Holden to a party in the city, and Holden thinks they are definitely going to hook up, only to find out that she's a lesbian. Holden and Alyssa develop a strong friendship, which Banky begins to resent. Banky is even more upset when, against all odds, Holden and Alyssa begin a romantic relationship.
1: So there is a lot to know about this movie. We're not going to be able to be expansive expansive about everything you could know because Kevin Smith is a guy who likes to talk. So there's a lot of information about the making of this movie. Um, But we're going to give some basic interesting facts so you can know a little more about how this movie came about. So there are kind of two main inspirations for the movie Chasing Amy. And one of them has to do with the movie Go Fish, which, if all goes well will be the episode just previous to this one. So Kevin Smith and his producing partner, Scott Mosier, were at Sundance Film Festival in 1994, promoting Clerks, when they met Rose Trochet, the director of Go Fish, and Guinevere Turner, the co-writer and star of Go Fish. And Go Fish is a lesbian independent rom-com. Both of the films were being represented by John Pearson at Sundance. And so they were hanging out a lot with each other. And Scott Mosier got quite a crush on Guinevere Turner, despite knowing that she was a lesbian and not interested in men. Um, so that sort of premise sparked something in Kevin Smith. And he said, what if I made a movie about a guy who falls in love with a lesbian? And unlike in Chasing Amy, Guinevere Turner never you know, reciprocated uh, Scott Mosier's feelings. So there's no nothing went on there. But it was just kind of a jumping off point. But in addition to being an inspiration for the movie Chasing Amy, Guinevere Turner actually played a role, you know, in helping Kevin Smith to get Chasing Amy made. Uh, Kevin Smith actually gave her an early copy of the script to look at, to kind of give a lesbian's point of view proofread. She told BuzzFeed News that she found the script mainly sound, but she had to tell Kevin Smith to take out a part about, quote, tongue fucking. And she told him, quote, you have a tongue, you know what a vagina is like, you can't fuck someone with a tongue. Lesbians aren't given extra inches on their tongues, and Gwyneth Turner also shows up in the movie Chasing Amy. She plays kind of a, is she a band member or an MC in a club scene?
0: I want to say she's the MC. I don't think she was in the band.
1: Yeah, and she calls Joey Lauren Adams' character Alyssa up on stage to sing, so you'll see her briefly in the film as well. So the second inspiration for Chasing Amy was Kevin Smith's real life relationship with his Amy star Joey Lauren Adams. They started dating during post-production on Mallrats, which Joey and Adams also appeared in, and then they were together for the Chasing Amy shoot. Um, Smith said that the reason it's an inspiration is he suffered a lot of insecurity while dating Adams because she had a lot more life experience. He wanted to point out that this was not necessarily sexual experience like in the movie, but just her experiences in general with travel and career. Um, Smith wrote for Criterion.com, quote, Chasing Amy was conceived as a sort of penance slash valentine for the woman who made me grow up more or less. A thank you homage that marked a major milestone in my life, both personally and professionally. So Mallrats ended up bombing at the theaters, but Smith had this vision for Chasing Amy in mind where he would cast Ben Affleck, who was then very unknown, Joey Lauren Adams and Jason Lee as his leads. Miramax wanted stars. But Kevin Smith was not willing to compromise, so Miramax ended up giving him a budget of just $250,000. But the movie went on to gross around $12 million. And because of that low budget, like it ended up being a really indie production again, like Clerks. Um, he said Scott Mosier, it was like a trial by fire for him trying to get things together for the funding. But Smith said it was also a blast. And like apparently the whole cast was like living either near or actually with each other. Joey Lauren Adams was like sleeping with Smith in his room. And then Ben Affleck was outside sleeping on the couch. So they were just like really living that indie lifestyle and playing video games in between like shooting scenes and so forth. Um, They ended up having about a month of rehearsals for the film, which is pretty unusual, but that was because they couldn't afford a lot of takes. Like they couldn't afford to waste any film and it ended up being worthwhile. The movie was very well received critically at the time and did well commercially and Joey Lauren Adams was nominated for a Golden Globe for her part as Alyssa. But then the relationship between Kevin Smith and Joey Lauren Adams, so they were apart while they were doing promo for the film, and apparently they kind of drifted apart. And Kevin Smith ended up breaking up with Adams in July 97 when he traveled to Toronto to surprise her for her birthday on a set, and she wanted to go to her pre-shoot party for her film rather than hang out with him. So kind of a sad ending to that story, but it A great film came out of it, in my opinion, anyway. And all the main characters from Chasing Amy appear again in the 2019 film, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. So if you want to know Kevin Smith's version of what happens to these characters decades after the events in Chasing Amy, check out that film.
0: I actually didn't know that because I haven't watched a Kevin Smith movie in a long time. So I'm going to have to check that out after we're done recording.
1: So. In terms of like this movie, I want to know kind of like when did you first see it both of you and like what did you think of it when you first saw it?
0: I saw it when it first came out. Again, I was working at a video store while I was in high school, so I watched a ton of movies in the mid-90s. I loved it when it came out. I loved it better than Smith's previous films because it is a more serious film than one expects from Kevin Smith and watching it again now as a man in his 40s i felt a much stronger connection to really all of the main characters than mm. i did when i was a teenager
1: hmm that's interesting and serena how about you um yeah i have similar similar
2: feelings i did see it when it first came out when it came out i was probably in my later teens Um, And it felt very revolutionary at the time. It felt very progressive. I don't think I'd really seen or heard anybody talk about female sexuality um, so openly or in that way. I hadn't had a lot of experience with sex or relationships, so it was pretty eye-opening. And I also, you know, not that I was, not that I felt that I was gay, but it was, and I'm not, but it was that... um, it kind of gave you like more of an option. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. just exploring sexuality and that I was like, Oh, I'm seeing this in like a contemporary film. And so this is, this is okay. You know, and coming from a small town and we were from the same small town. Yeah. um, I I felt like that wasn't something you really talked about a lot um, being gay or being a lesbian or any of that culture, you know? And so it was pretty eye opening for me at the time and i thought it was going to age badly like i was really interested in how i was going to see it with my with my 2022 eyes and it's actually aged really well i thought it it did a good job like it wasn't overtly sexist i mean it is but it's almost like in an understandable way it's like we're kind of going on this like journey um with the main character yeah that's what that's what I feel about it. It's it's still good. It holds up. It does.
1: Yeah. Like I, some of the things you said, Serena, about female sexuality really resonates with me because I remember, I'm pretty sure I saw this at the theater in 97. My take on Alyssa Jones in Chasing Amy is that she's this like really powerful, like character who embraces her own sexuality, who doesn't feel a, a sense of shame about her sexuality and who's just really open and friendly and like, and also affectionate and warm. So it's like, Not like she's just about sex, she's also embodying love and affection and friendship. And I found that so wonderful because you didn't see a lot of female characters like that. You either saw kind of good girls, like who could be friendly and nice, or you saw people who were really into sex, but it was kind of viewed as like something bad, like that made them heartless in some way. And Alyssa was neither of those. She was just like a real woman that I could understand because. In my late teens and early 20s, I was you know, sexually exploring myself. I was getting out there. Um, some people might have called me a slut at that age, but here was a character that I could identify with. So, yeah, I remember feeling the movie was revolutionary in that sense, too. I mean, I had seen a lot of um, indie films with gay and lesbian characters before Chasing Amy, so that wasn't so new to me at the time, but it was nice to see it reaching kind of a wider audience, an audience of people who might not be seeking out those indie films. And yeah, I I loved the movie then. I would say I've seen it many times since, you know, 97. So I've kind of seen it age over, the t- over time as I have aged. And I think maybe I liked it more when I was younger. I still like it, I still respond to it, but like it meant more to me at that age when I was the Alyssa Jones kind of person than it does now, I guess. Like mm-hmm. n- now I think I sort of take that kind of openness for granted more.
0: I feel like that makes a lot of sense. I've felt both like Alyssa then and now. I feel like a lot of the characters in the movie actually, but I think we'll get to that later. But the one thing that really surprised me because it's been a it's been a while since I've watched this movie is just how much smoking is in that movie. <laughs> and I was just taken aback by it because that does that really places it in the 90s. I don't think you would see that now if it was made today
1: yeah or it would indicate something about the characters or something if they were smoking a lot yeah it would be used as a signal like that they were bad or they didn't care about their health or something like that for sure <laughs> yeah reality bites which we also covered tons of smoking in that as well <laughs> and-, and
0: i'm still personally shocked that this is a criterion movie
1: dude it, it entered the collection in something like 2000
0: that just boggles my mind
1: what why, I don't know why. Uh-
0: I don't know why it boggles my mind. dude. It, it, it's cl- it's clearly Smith's most mature film to date at that point. I can't say I've watched his entire oeuvre. But still, there's just something about, like, in my head, a Criterion movie is this, but then also Chasing Amy, isn't it?
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is a Criterion movie right now, too. So I don't know if either of you have seen that, but it takes all kinds, the Criterion collection. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk now about the cast and crew, Kevin Smith. So Kevin Smith is the writer and director of the movie, and he also plays the character Silent Bob, which we see throughout his films. Um, I would say he's one of the most recognizable directors to come out of the Gen X era, although I had the depressing experience the other day of talking to my upstairs roommate who's like, I don't know, a young millennial maybe, and she had never heard of Kevin Smith or Clerks and neither had her boyfriend. So I was sad. I don't know. Do you guys get the feeling that people still know who Kevin Smith is or? Not not anyone that I associate with in
2: in this life. In your island life? Yeah. no. A lot of my
0: karaoke friends are younger, so I might have to actually ask that question.
1: I would be interested to hear the answer. Yeah. Anyway. I know
0: the answer is going to make me feel old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but for those of us who were kind of anywhere near the Gen X era, people knew who Kevin Smith was. Um, he broke out like really big with his movie Clerks in 1994, um, which was a, a huge indie success. Initially, it was made for $27,000. Um, that's before post-production stuff, but it ended up grossing $3.2 million and Clerks was just this like seminal film when it came out every and everyone I knew was working as like some kind of clerk or retail employee or movie theater employee and we all related to that movie if right. you were like late teens early 20s yeah uh-huh yeah <laughs> okay and then Kevin Smith followed up Clerks with Mallrats um which had a much bigger budget but ended up losing money in theaters And it did find success on video, but like Mallrats to me was at the time kind of a disappointment and I rewatched it and I'm still kind of like, eh, about it. So Chasing Amy, though, was his third film and he had to kind of go back to his indie roots in order to stay true to his vision of keeping the actors he wanted in it. And in Chasing Amy, there are callbacks to both of the previous two films. There are Clerks references and occasional Mallrats references Many of Smith's movies are like this. I think they're becoming more and more like this over the years. They are set in what's called the View Askew Universe, and that's named after his production company. And there are all these recurring characters, like mainly Jay and Silent Bob, but then also characters from Chasing Amy, Mallrats, Clerks, will recur throughout his movies. Smith also has a cast of actors who regularly appear in his movies, including all three of the leads in Chasing Amy. And surprisingly, um, one of the women from Mister Rogers' neighborhood is one of his recurring actors. Did you guys have you guys ever seen her in his movies? What? Yeah, like <laughs> Which one? I can't remember her name, but the really nice brunette woman who's always interacting with the puppets. She's in Kevin Smith movies. Like, yeah, like I hadn't put it together until I saw her in a documentary. Anyway, I thought that was so cool. Okay, so other films that Smith has written and directed include Dogma, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Jersey Girl, Clerks 2, Zack and Miri Make a Porno, Red State, Tusk, Yoga Hosers, and the Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. And for TV, he's directed episodes of The Flash and Supergirl. He wrote episodes of the Clerks TV series. And recently, he was the story editor and wrote two episodes of the 2021 animated show Masters of the Universe Revelation. In addition to all this work, Kevin Smith has worked in comic writing. Um, including he did a series of Daredevil comics. He's done public speaking engagements, which he gets paid for and which are quite entertaining. And podcasts, including Smodcast and Fat Man Beyond, which used to be called Fat Man on Batman. He also owns a comic book store called Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash in Red Bank, New Jersey, which sells merchandise related to his films. And he's always just got a lot of projects going on, basically, in general. And he's been married since 1999. His wife, Jennifer Schwalbach Smith, and his daughter, Harley Quinn Smith, regularly appear in his movies as well. And one thing that a lot of people might know is in February 2018, he had a heart attack, which almost killed him, after which he adopted a vegan diet and he participates in regular exercise. And he's lost like a lot of weight and he's got a lot of stuff coming up. There's going to be a trailer for Clerks 3, which is supposedly going to drop in May. And he's on post-production on a comedy horror called Kilroy Was Here, which he's going to release as an NFT, apparently. This just came out the other day, which is only going to be available to like 5,555 NFT holders. He's also on pre-production for Twilight of the Mall Rats. So let's see. We've talked a little bit about this already, but are you guys Kevin Smith fans? Do you have any favorites of his work? Like,
0: I was a guy growing up in the 90s, so I did love... Clerks, Small Rats, Chasing Amy, Dogma. Of those, Chasing Amy is by far my favorite. As I said before, it's his most grown-up work to date at that point. And, I mean, I like dumb comedy, and a lot of his stuff is like dumb, smart comedy, which is a very specific thing, and I, I do tend to enjoy that.
1: And you haven't seen much since then, it sounds like, or like...
0: I want to say that the last thing that I've seen of his that is in this view universe is clerks Two, And then I've also seen Zach and Miri make a porno, but beyond that, that's about where I, where I drop off.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I like, I loved um, clerks and I still love clerks and actually I would be hard pressed to put it above chasing Amy. For me, they're both tied because clerks is just a totally different thing. So clerks and chasing Amy are kind of tied for my favorite. I did not like Mallrats then. I don't really like it now. Um, I love Dogma. And I like some of his later stuff, but like not as much as Clerks and Chasing Amy for sure. But yeah, um, yeah I, I still will watch whatever he makes, even though some of his movies like Clerks 2 was like, really disappointing to me, to be honest, but I will still watch Clerks 3 because, and I don't know what it is. I think I like Kevin Smith, the personality too, as much as it's about his films. Like I kind of want to know what he has to say. I want to know what's going to happen to these characters that I care about. He's, it's kind of clever the way he's built this kind of like self-referential universe where like, you've kind of feel like you're in on a joke when you watch his movies. So even if the movie itself isn't always like what you want it to be, you still want to keep tuning in. At least that's how I view it.
2: Yeah, I agree. Like, I think Kevin Smith, um, I just have mad respect for him for like what he's done with his career and that it's sort of inspirational in a way uh, that he has, I mean, I know he hasn't done it like on his own, but in the beginning he initially did. And that was kind of that, that indie movement. I feel like he's kind of in the same category to me in my mind as Quentin Tarantino. Like you said, like he's kind of created his own universe that everyone's sort of in on yeah um and and i like that i do think a lot of his humor is a little like sophomoric for me i guess like it just doesn't eh, you know like i'm (laughs) i'm not really like in that club like i'm not like a a comic book reading guy you know so um but i do i really like dogma when it came out remember when it came out i thought that was a wonderful movie i yeah I haven't really seen too much since then but I do have mad respect for him and his work and I think he himself is is pretty entertaining
1: yeah yeah I get the sense he's like a genuine guy too like just a nice dude that you would want to hang out with is the Mm -hmm. other thing and I think that makes me want to watch his movies more so there you go um And another thing I would say, yeah, like when you're talking about sophomoric, like he even references it, I think sometimes in his own movies, like, like dick and fart jokes and stuff like that. I think that's even in Chasing Amy. Like, that's not my thing. And it's kind of like in some of his movies, there's like a very high ratio of like there's more dick and fart jokes than there is like Silent Bob moments where somebody (laughs) breaks it down and is kind of intelligent about something. Like Mallrats is like very heavy on the dick and fart jokes end. And then you got Chasing Amy, which is like we've pushed those to the side a bit more. And I think that's more of a sweet spot when Kevin Smith listens to the silent Bob inside himself a little more. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) I will always speak up in defense of fart jokes, though, because fart (laughs) jokes are still funny to me in my 40s. All right.
1: So I guess we'll move on then. Um, And Serena, what can you tell us about Ben Affleck? So Ben Affleck
2: plays Holden McNeil. He is a very famous actor. Everyone's gonna know who this is. Um, but he attributes his success to Kevin Smith. He wrote for the 2021 book, Kevin Smith's Secret Stash. Quote unquote, Kevin Smith is largely responsible, judge him as you will, for my career and the opportunity I've had to make a living doing what I love for the last 25 years. He credits Smith with with offering him the lead role in chasing Amy and then also helped him helped him and Matt Damon to get Goodwill Hunting picked up by Miramax which is I guess what really launched their careers and they've had huge lengthy careers Uh, prior to chasing Amy Affleck had done tv movies um do you guys remember Voyage of the Mimi no no oh my god that it was like a pbs like series and and he was a child actor in it he was very young and they're like on this boat like following whales like around the world i don't know look at it was amazing it like was was um life-changing for me and it's called voyage of the mimi <laughs> anyways sorry <laughs> no that's okay that's interesting yeah. And and I and I was actually it was kind of like reminiscing, and I was like, oh, like because I always think like when did I start thinking about living on a boat? And I honestly think that that movie and Ben Affleck is one of the inspirations for it, like getting into like my subconscious somehow that like living on a boat is like a thing that people do. Nice. Prior to chasing Amy, he had done TV movies, supporting role in School Ties, a minor role in Days and Confused. A lead role in glory days and he started working with Smith in mall rats
1: yeah and in mall rats it's interesting because Ben Affleck and Jason Lee acted together in that movie as well but in that movie Ben Affleck was this arrogant like manager of like a men's clothing store and and he was trying to get together with uh, Jason Lee's ex-girlfriend and so they had like fights and an antagonistic relationship in the movie and here they are in this movie best friends so I mm-hmm. thought that was funny so the year that Chasing Amy came out in 1997 was a big
2: year for Ben Affleck. First with Chasing Amy in April, then with Goodwill Hunting in December, um, for which Ben and Matt Damon won Best Screenplay at the Oscars. All right. In the late 90s, Affleck also did Armageddon, Shakespeare in Love, Forces of Nature, and co-starred with Matt Damon again as one of a pair of fallen angels in Kevin Smith's Dogma. In the 2000s, he's appeared in Pearl Harbor, Daredevil, He's Just Not That Into You, as well as three Kevin Smith films, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, and the lead role in Jersey Girl. In 2007, he directed and co-wrote his first feature, Gone Baby Gone, starring his brother, Casey Affleck, which is a great movie. And in the 2010s, he's wrote, directed, starred in The Town and produced, directed and starred in Argo, which won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. He starred in Gone Girl and The Accountant and began playing Batman in the DC Cinematic Universe. Recently, he's produced, co-wrote, starred in The Last Duel and acted in The Tender Bar and Deep Water. He has some stuff coming up. Um, he's going to reprise his role as Batman in The Flash, scheduled for 2023 and a thriller called Hypnotic, which I'm seeing trailers for right now, in pre-production as director and star on a World War II movie, Ghost Army. So obviously, yeah. he is very, very, very successful.
1: Okay, so we got one more lead we're going to talk about.
0: And that would be Joey Lauren Adams. Her first IMDb credit was the TV show Top of the Heap in 1991. Her first movie appearance was Dazed and Confused in 1993. Her first work with Kevin Smith was a supporting role in Mallrats 1995. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress for her performance in Chasing Amy. She didn't have a huge amount of fame after Chasing Amy, but did appear in many lesser-known movies or in supporting roles in bigger movies, including A Cool Dry Place, The Breakup, and small appearances in Smith's films, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. She's appeared on TV shows including The United States of Terra, which is fantastic, Switched at Birth, and Still the King. In 2006, she also wrote and directed a romantic drama, Come Early Morning, starring Ashley Judd. Coming up, she's set to appear in the movies Tank House and Oak, and she will reprise her Mallrats role for Smith's Twilight of the Mallrats.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wonder why she never really made it big. It's hard to say. It might be her her voice is a very specific kind of voice, and I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. And I always got her
2: confused with Renee Zellweger, like when they were, they look like the same person to me.
1: There's also that, the actress who works with Judd Apatow, who I think is married to Judd Apatow, if I'm not mistaken, who has a similar voice, too.
0: Leslie Mann. Yeah, Leslie uh. Mann. She sounds
1: a lot like Leslie Mann as well. So, yeah, but there aren't usually... you can, They're allowed to have like, well, a lot of guy actors who have the same look or sound, right? But you can't have like more than one woman, I guess.
0: And let, let's also not forget that there is a certain bias where guys get to be in leading roles mm-hmm. and all of that... The Even as they age, whereas there's clearly a bias where once women start to age, they end up getting cast in different roles or offered less roles entirely.
1: Yeah, but I mean, she was pretty young still, like, at that point. So I'm just wondering why, why, why not her? Like, why was it Renee or Leslie Mann, like, who are still working, both of them, like. Yeah, Joey or Lauren Cameron Adams. Diaz. I kind yeah. of feel like that whole. They were all kind of like that same look, you coming know? and coming up in that same era. Yeah, but I mean, Joey Lauren Adams' work is very solid in this. Like, I haven't really, to be honest, seen her in a lot of other stuff. But um, yeah, maybe I'll check out. I wanted to check out the movie she directed, but I haven't been able to get my hands on a copy yet. So, and then finally, some other important cast and crew. So Jason Lee plays Banky, who usually we would also cover him, but there's just so much to cover. And there's also Dwight Ewell plays Hooper, who writes a comic from a militant black point of view, which he's a great character. And Scott Mosier is the producer who I'm just shouting out here because according to everyone on this set, Scott Mosier really held this production together with duct tape. He was the one making sure it got done. He was the one cobbling the money together. So we owe a lot to Scott Mosier for getting this film to us. We're rounding out our Gen X series. And why Chasing Amy to finish up the series? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason it's just clearly has a Gen X spirit to it. The film was made as an indie film with the indie film budget and by one of Gen X's most prominent indie filmmakers. Another thing I wanted to highlight is the issues of sexuality it explores and having gay and lesbian characters in a movie, which we've also seen with Go Fish. We saw it a little bit with She's Gotta Have It in a Less Than Ideal Way and a little bit with Reality Bites, but this is a movie that is pretty much about sexuality in a lot of ways. So that was an important thing in Gen X. We started seeing movies where sexuality was explored more openly. And like Tarantino, this movie is also filled with pop culture references. But unlike Tarantino, Kevin Smith's references are more specifically related to the world of sci-fi and comic book culture. And that's something that people take for granted today. People nowadays are used to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're used to everybody, you know, watching Star Trek shows. They're used to people having a favorite Harry Potter house. But back in the 80s and 90s this was not necessarily the case. Like were you guys like nerds or geeks in the 80s or 90s was this culture something you were involved in in any way?
0: I was so involved in it. Like right now Moon Knight is airing on Disney Plus. If I would have asked you guys in 1990 anything who Moon Knight was. Would you guys have known that character? I
1: still don't know. To be honest, I I, I will. I will soon know, but because we will end up watching it. But yeah, Moon Knight. Uh,
0: Yeah, Yeah. I was, I was, a, I I say was, I am still a huge nerd.
1: What was it like for you being a nerd back then? Like,
0: here's the awful thing for me. And I feel bad saying this, but I'm the kind of nerd who always hated the other nerds. Somewhat. (laughs) Uh, I was also, you know, athletic. I was also an artsy kid and I never really got that. Like nerds don't know how to socialize thing. That was a big thing in eighties and nineties media. Yeah. And sometimes people who fell into that category would really get on my nerves for a multitude of reasons. But I, I, I just think, you know, then now like what you like, you don't have to explain it. I don't believe any pleasure is guilty. So Enjoy what you enjoy, whether it's nerdy things or not nerdy things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, one thing I wanted to get at, though, is like what you were saying is like in the 80s and 90s, like there was this perception of a nerd or a geek or someone who was interested in comic books or sci fi as being like perhaps they could be like a sympathetic underdog character, like Revenge of the Nerds or Urkel, but like they weren't like the cool protagonist character. They weren't like someone you envisioned having sex, for example. We did see with True Romance, like Quentin Tarantino's lead character in that is a comic book fan too, works in a comic book store. So that was a little bit of that. And then Kevin Smith's movies, all the characters seemingly have some knowledge about comic books or sci-fi. And, you know, in Clerks, we had like the Star Wars contractor speech, for example. And in, and in this movie, everybody, the protagonists are all comic book creators. So not just fans, but actual creators. And they are people who are having social lives and having sex and having even interesting sex lives. So I think like Kevin Smith is one of the people who brought forth the idea of a geek or a nerd as someone cool. And you could see yourself on the screen represented that way. Serena, I think were you like any kind of geek? Like you were a Trekkie though, weren't you? Like, oh yeah, like started- and I when I was watching
2: this, I was struck by their Comic Con because I've been to I've eh, not super recently, but when I lived in New York, um, I did go to Comic Con when it came every year, and now Comic Con's like Coachella, like the <laughs> Comic Cons that they have, like they're huge. They have huge panels, huge stars, and they're a big deal. And I and watching like that Comic Con, and I I don't, um. Yeah, it was just like small and it was filled with like, quote unquote, nerds, not just open to everybody, um, which I think it is now and is, is more acceptable. But yeah, I was I mean, I still, you know, I joke, I still have my Star Trek pen pal. We're still pen pals. And I, you know, just sent her a bottle of Picard wine, you know, because like, <laughs> like, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't I never really like lo- thought of myself as a nerd. Or anything like that but i to this day i love sci-fi um i'm a huge expanse fan star trek all of that but yeah i never i never gave myself like a label yeah no i always thought it was cool like (laughs) (laughs) well you you always were cool (laughs) i never let it get me down i was like no this is what i like this stuff is
1: cool so yeah so Obviously there's been a growing interest like since 1997 when Chasing Amy came out in geek and nerd culture like at that time it was pretty unique to have a movie you know with comic book creators and to have Kevin Smith's movies with all these references um Mallrats actually like he was I don't know if Stanley had ever done a cameo before. Like now we know about Stanley's cameos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, Mallrats had a Stanley cameo, you know, back in 1995. So he was kind of ahead of his time. He kind of like foresaw the future in a way. And whereas I don't think we can entirely credit Kevin Smith for bringing about like the nerd and geek revolution. I want to say though, that even the people who from Marvel give Kevin Smith a lot of credit. So I was watching the documentary Clerk which is a very interesting documentary if you want to know more about Kevin Smith, although it helps to know a little bit about him already. Um, but in the documentary, Clerk, um, a couple people had a lot of good things to say about Kevin Smith's con- contribution to the rise of geek culture. Joe Quesada, who is now the creative director for Marvel Entertainment, was talking about Kevin Smith agreeing to do a series of comic books for Marvel, and this is what he had to say about that. 1996-1997. It was about as dark a time as you could imagine in comics. When we approached Kevin, Kevin was riding high. As a young filmmaker and looking at it from his perspective, there was a lot to risk there. And he said yes. And when he said yes, and when those books came out, it changed everything. He brought a spotlight to comic books. He brought excitement to comic books. He has been an advocate for the industry. He not only saved my career and Marvel, but contributed to the saving of comics. I mean, that's pretty ridiculously high praise. And then Stanley also was quoted in the same documentary saying, Kevin has had a great impact on comic books. Almost every comic book writer and artist has great respect for him and great love for him. What do you think about this, Ed? Because you actually have experience like with comic books journalism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing more mass market news stories related to comics because of Kevin Smith than from the comics themselves it was very big news when he had his daredevil run when he did his green arrow and that showed up in places like entertainment weekly before they really started covering comics
3: Mm.
1: yeah definitely bringing attention to the genre and giving people permission to to read the comic books and to see themselves as like not being losers too i think in his movies like these were the cool kids in chasing amy these were not losers
0: yeah, that certainly helps. I mean, before I started wearing karaoke T-shirts almost exclusively, I did wear nerd shirts a lot, and <laughs> and that certainly uh, made it less rare for someone to wear stuff like that. Yeah, when all of that was out.
1: Yeah, and I was never a comic book geek when I was growing up, or like not really a sci fi geek. I was a Star Wars geek only. I guess you could say like so I started I related to that aspect of like Kevin Smith movies there's always a Star Wars reference if not an entire take on Star Wars like an interesting take that like you would come up with your with your friends at midnight or something in a coffee shop
0: yeah I won't say that I'm not like a nerd in that way but like with comics I very much fell more into the Alyssa Jones side of things than the Holden and Banky side of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can so can you explain, like, we can start talking about that. Like when we get to the comic um, convention, we see different kinds of comic people at the convention. So what's the Holden and Banky versus the Alyssa Jones side?
0: Well, obviously we've talked about daredevil and green arrow and all the comics that Smith made for the big mainstream superhero comics publishers. But that's not all there is to comics. I mean, there's a big market for Japanese comics. Now, obviously, there's a big market for comics that are not designed for superhero fans. The kind of works that I assume that Alyssa Jones did in this. We don't really see a lot of her work in the movie. Yeah, but it makes me think of, you know, Alison Bechdel. It makes me think of Howard Cruz. It makes me think of a lot of queer people in the space who are doing more personal stories. It makes me think of a lot of things that aren't necessarily focused on male power fantasies. I hate the idea of tying a medium to a certain genre, if that makes sense. The medium, the medium of comics is literally just words and pictures together telling a story most times. And it can be romance. It can be superheroes. It can be mystery. It can be comedy the medium itself has a wide variety in it. And this is the first movie that I remember seeing that captured some of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll start kind of like getting into the actual movie now. And like we we start out just really quick. The opening credits, we have our, you know, signature chasing Amy mellow song, which was actually written by Dave Perner from soul asylum, which I did not realize. pretty Neither cool.
0: did I. Yeah. Isn't Spain that time. cool? That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And we've got the opening credits have comic book covers and they were made by various comic book artists who have become fairly prominent. Like, I don't know as much about these artists. Like if you, if you wouldn't mind that, if you know anything about these artists, can you like tell us a little something really quick?
0: I'll be frank. I don't know much about Kirk Van Warmer. I believe he is primarily known as a director of movies. Okay. Uh, but he did the, uh, the cover art stuff in the credits for the idiosyncratic routine that Alyssa Jones does and Baby Dave, which Banky does. Mike Allred did all of the Bluntman and Chronic stuff, and his style is just very singular. You know a Mike Allred thing when you look at it, so I didn't even need to see the credits to know that Mike Allred did the Blunt, Man and Chronic stuff. That was very obvious. And you'll see to- tokens of his art throughout. Uh, the Wizard Magazine with Bluntman and Chronic also promotes Allred's Madman, which is his series that he's most known for. And uh, Joe Cassada and Jimmy Palmiotti did a lot of the other art as well.
1: Yeah. And are they, and i Joe Cassata. We've already talked about does as a creative director at Marvel. What is, is Jimmy Palmiotti known for anything in particular at,
0: at the time they were paired up and they did the Marvel Knights imprint at Marvel where they took superhero comics and made them more. And I'm doing air quotes here, mature. So stories that were a little bit more violent, a little bit more bloody that had a little bit more leeway with language and sexual content.
1: Okay good to know. Thanks. Thank you for that cuz like this is like stuff that goes a little bit over my head. So these movies are obviously richer the more you know about comic books too. And then after the opening credits we get to the comic book convention. According to Scott Mosier, it cost about $2,000 to put together this fake comic book convention and he said in the commentary that at the time someone told him that was the best comic book convention we've ever had in Jersey. <laughs> too bad it, too bad it was fake or something. <laughs> So, again, that shows you how much Comic Cons have grown since that time because nowadays, like every city or state, will have a comic book convention that looks that big or bigger, probably. At the comic book convention, we see um, Holden and Banky are signing copies of their book, Blunt Man and Chronic, and interacting with their fans, only for a guy to come up to their uh, booth, played by Scott Mosier, and accuse Banky of being a tracer because he is the inker for the comic. (laughs) This is not something I'd ever thought of before watching this movie, but I thought it was hilarious. Like um, the comic apparently has one person who does the original art, like the first draft, like with the pencil and then the next person fills in the ink. And yeah, Scott Mosher's like, you're just a tracer, (laughs) which enrages Banky. And yeah, like, Ed, what do you think about this Inker Tracer controversy? Was this something that anyone actually talked about? Or is this just a Kevin Smith original thought?
0: I am sure people talked about this. And it bothers me to an extent, even though I am not somebody who is a visual artist. But I do know what goes into making a comic book. And inking is certainly more than tracing. I will throw this out to any nerds in the audience. But would you rather have Vince Coletta ink? A Jack Kirby work, or literally anyone else, and they'll tell you literally anyone else.
1: I have no idea, but but I'm sure somebody <laughs> yeah. understands. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, and and I think this sh- scene is also good because like Banky like freaks out on this on this guy who's calling him a tracer, and it kind of shows you like Banky's kind of feelings of insecurity and inadequacy right away, and his propensity to get into a rage. He starts like attacking this other guy and Holden has to hold him back. It really, I think, establishes their dynamic right away. And oh, another thing I should mention, Casey Affleck also shows up briefly in this uh, scene as a fan who is convinced by Scott Mosier's uh, character not to get Banky's autograph. So a little, little cameo there. Well, now it would be considered a cameo. Then it was just like, here's a guy we can get to act for free in our very cheap film. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> basically. <laughs> And um, yeah, we, I mean, we touched on this already, but like Comic-Cons have just like grown and grown since like this little small one that we've seen in the scene. Um, We were talking about Comic-Con earlier. Apparently the first one was 1970 and there were only about 145 fans present. And by the early nineties, the the San Diego Comic-Con attendance was in the thousands and it was steadily rising, but attendance didn't really go up sharply until the early 2000s. And by 2019, like pre-pandemic, Attendance was at about 130,000 and could have been more, apparently, if the convention center had more capacity. So these things have just grown and grown. Like, let's see, we talked a little bit about this. Serena, you said you've been to some Comic Cons. Ed, you've been to some? I have, yeah. I, I just remembered like another
2: thing that kind of helped. Like nerddom, or, or made it more in like the general public was Lord of the Rings. When oh Lord yeah, the Rings came out. That was that was huge, and that's kind of when I first remember seeing those huge panels with like all the stars, and it being like such a big deal. You know?
1: Yeah. Good call. Good call.
0: The shows that I went to tended to be more, again, on the artsy independent side of things. There are some great shows that happen in New York City, uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Those are always the kind of comics I connected. Those are always the shows I connected with. So those are what I attended the most.
1: Oh, can you, are they still going on? If you, if you want to give some names, Uh, we can put them in the show notes for links.
0: Absolutely. Uh, The MoCA, which is the museum of comic and cartoon art. The MoCA festival happens every year. I want to say they now moved it to April, but uh, it's been a while since I've been at one of those shows. And then the SPX small press expo in Bethesda, Maryland. Both great shows. You find a lot of great stuff there, great artists, and always a good time.
1: Excellent. Thanks for that. Thanks for the recommendations. Speaking of these smaller comics, like after we see this confrontation at the booth, we get into the minority words panel where we're going to see, we're going to meet a few more new characters. This is one of the funniest parts in the movie for me. We meet the character Hooper or Hooper X. And he's addressing the audience, talking about his comic book at first, and then moving into a speech about Star Wars, which what would a Kevin Smith movie be like without a speech about Star Wars?
3: Those movies are about how the white man keeps the brother man down, even in a galaxy far, far away. Check this shit. You got Cracker Farm Boy, Luke Skywalker, Nazi poster boy, blonde hair, blue eyes. And then you got Darth Vader. The blackest brother in the galaxy, Nubian God. What's a Nubian? Shut the fuck up. Now, Vader, he's a spiritual brother, down with the Force and all that good shit. Then there's Cracker, Skywalker. Gets his hands on a lightsaber, and the boy decides he's going to run the fucking universe. Gets a whole clan of whites together. And they going to bust up Vader's hood, the Death Star. Now, what the fuck do you call that? Intergalactic Civil War? Gentrification! They gonna drive out the black element to make the galaxy, quote, unquote, safe for white folks. And Jedi's the most insulting installment, because Vader's beautiful black visage is sullied when he pulls off his mask to reveal a feeble, crusty old white man. They trying to tell us that deep inside, we all wants to be white! Well, isn't that true?
1: <laughs> I love that scene. So the punchline of this whole experience is that Hooper X is a character, basically, that Hooper, the comic book author, plays in order to sell his like comic book, um, which is kind of like a Black Power comic book. And he, in, he in real life, is like a kind of like gentle, funny, black gay man who needs, feels the need to hide, but, and probably, you know, in the, in terms of the market at that time had to hide behind this role of this, like just really militant, angry guy who is not gay. And at the end you see him like pretending to shoot um, Banky and Holden, who he's placed in the audience as these like uh, characters to get him upset And the only person who's in on the joke besides Holden and Banky turns out to be Alyssa Jones, who we'll meet in a second. But before we talk about Alyssa, what do you guys think of this like Hooper X speech, this character, the whole setup?
0: Who hasn't had to put on a persona in some situation, either for work or personal? Mm. So I, I really connect with that and i love how absolutely over the top it is i i was trying so hard not to just laugh just hearing <laughs> yeah. that clip again i love i love that clip <laughs> the the interesting thing though is that like when i think of typical nerd spaces which this movie's trying to present especially at the time they were not very welcoming spaces to anybody who wasn't a nerdy white kid mm. and so i really love that not only did kevin smith bring in a character portraying a militant black power character, but that, that that character was also gay, which is something you you don't see a lot of black male gay characters in mainstream movies even today. So I just think that whole character he, Cooper's one of my favorites in the entire movie.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I love that character. I also love um, I also love the whole Star Wars like uh, like the, the critical analysis he's doing there. like as much as it's over the top, you go to like Tumblr, you go to like Twitter, you've got people doing takes like this right now, like like trying to dissect what is this movie really telling us? What is the secret message in this movie? You know what I mean? So it's the kind of cultural analysis that people are still doing. and you know whatever you want to think of it, it does at least it makes you think a little bit and it could be amusing too
2: i was kind of trying to put that into like um like how would that scene go over if it was made today i mean and obviously we're we're kind of like in the middle of like a still dealing with a lot of like racial politics even recently with the whole like will smith slapping thing you know about the like the black male rage Mm -hmm. and like how it's portrayed and like how that's played up. And I thought that it was just like really interesting that I mean this is something that obviously has been going on for a long time. Um and how that is like a character. How like black male rage is is a character was I don't know. It was like kind this,
1: of a stereotype kind of but like Yeah,
2: it was it was just like kind of weird because I just kept on thinking about like how even that shooting scene too kind of like kind of put me a little on edge. I was like, oh, yeah. that would not that would not go over well if that was portrayed right now.
1: Yeah. That's you know? a fair point because like the, the odds of that being just like hunky dory for this guy to be like, you know, f- for him to not worry about having yeah, shot a gun. like
2: Exactly. Like I'm just going to shoot off this gun in this convention with a bunch of white people. Like, yeah, that, that would have played out very differently if that was filmed in 2022.
1: What's interesting um, to me also though, is the part before the Star Wars analysis, he's also though talking about generally like a lack of representation of black characters in the comics and in the sci-fi mm-hmm. world. And like all mm-hmm. um, Holden talks about what about Lando Calrissian, like as his like asshole character. And then, right. um, and, and he's critiquing Lando Calrissian and like. As like the token, like what about
2: the token?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so like, I think it is, it's imperfectly, in terms of like what we see in 2022 it's imperfectly bringing up a problem of represent lack of representation Mm -hmm, and stereotypes mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting serena i'm glad you brought that up that was one of the scenes that i didn't think aged very well okay that that, in my
2: personal opinion yeah it's not that i disliked it but i i was like "Mm -hmm."
1: fair enough and what do you think about the character of hooper generally like like the rest of the movie I,
2: I liked it, you know, I, I like him as himself, yeah. obviously, as like the, the, you know, effeminate black gay man, and like the things that he has to say, and his insights are are great. But yeah, I felt like that scene in particular was like, mm, I don't know how that's aged.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So then after like, this has all gone down, um, Hooper thing, I guess he I can't remember if he thinks Holden and Banky, but like, we find out that they were in on this joke this display, and then he introduces them to their, his co-panelist, Alyssa Jones, author of Idiosyncratic Routine, played by Joey Lauren Adams. And let's see, where do they end up going? I can't remember where they, they go to, like, a nearby bar or something?
2: hmm yeah. They go to a nearby bar and they play darts.
1: Yeah, and like, while Alyssa and Holden are talking, we've got Hooper arguing with Banky about whether Archie and Jughead were lovers in the Archie comic books. <laughs> which, which is funny to me. I don't know why. I feel like I've seen that fanfic too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen those portrayals. So this um, Archie and Jughead conversation that was bringing out Banky's like, kind of insecurity around homophobia, like homophobia and kind of like, you get the sense that he's really like, his homophobia might be rooted in some kind of insecurity about his own sexuality. I don't know. That's brought up a lot during the film. So while they're having this uh, spirited conversation about Archie and Jughead, um, Holden and Alyssa are talking about their respective comics careers. Holden and Banky are apparently having a lot of success with Bluntman and Chronic. Um, they're even in talks to get it turned into a TV show while Alyssa is doing her indie thing. Like, so we learn a little bit more about her comic in that conversation. And we don't know anything really else about Alyssa right now because she kind of has to take off pretty quickly. But Holden is into her right away. She's playing darts with him. She's a cool girl, comics creator, what's not to love?
2: So there's a part where Hooper calls up Holden and sneakily, like, invites him out to a club where Alyssa is going to be. And he, like, convinces him to go because Alyssa's is going to be there. I kind of feel like this is, like, a weird setup. Is that on purpose? Like, I feel like they're, like, punking him in some way oh like they like that's the take I got from it because he was like with another friend like when they were on the phone and they were kind of like giggling like in between him being like oh you're gonna go now because Alyssa's gonna be there he's like yes I'm gonna be there and it's almost like a setup and I didn't really feel comfortable with that like he was like not in on the joke huh because he did he doesn't know the joke yet and then and then when they get to the, the club The this is like the meow mix scene. Um, when they get to the club and then it's like, she's in on it too.
1: Oh no, I don't think so. Like you don't think the, so the, I the think... him being into on it. I could buy, but I don't think she's like trying to like punk him at all. <laughs> no. See, I always assumed, and maybe that's because I'm like such a guileless person. I always thought like Alyssa really did tell Hooper to invite them to the club. And like, uh, hooper wasn't he was laughing about something else but you you could be right maybe he and his friend are like hey hey, hey. like let's send a straight guy to the lesbian club because he's in love with the lesbian <laughs> i don't know but i really don't think Alyssa was in on it just based on her personality i think like she was genuinely happy to see holden and wasn't trying to fool there's, him in any way
2: there's a couple of scenes where she and i i don't know and maybe that's just like my personality and like maybe because like i um know what my like boundaries are and and it's felt like they had just met she just felt too touchy with him and like like they they weren't there yet in like their friendship to be like that it's like she was overtly like flirting with him and then later on like that makes more sense but like i was just kind of like mm, this girl is playing head games with him like oh. this is th- that's what i took from it i maybe i'm completely wrong but i was like mm, this just doesn't feel like sh- I don't know. It just it def- it felt wrong to me. Oh, I know. See,
0: I'm oh, I'm ahead. very much like Alyssa in that scene. I flirt with literally everyone, <laughs> so I didn't take it in any kind of weird way. I just thought that's who she was.
2: Yeah, yeah. And fair enough. Because I'm I'm just like like I'm not like that at all. So. <laughs> So then that that's probably why I took it like that. Like, okay. oh, man, like if if I was into a guy that was gay, which has been the case in some parts of my life, and then they were like overtly flirty with me, I would I would like take that the wrong way.
1: I see. I see. Yeah. No, I, I'm like I'm with I'm with that here. I like I'm, I'm not like that myself necessarily, but I know people who are very touchy right away. So, yeah, oh, like okay. I didn't see it as anything. Um, OK, I think it is. It can be like used in cinema. Having someone touch someone a lot um, can be used as sort of a clue, a cue to the audience to want to have those people together. Though, like you'll see a lot of like like subtle body language, the way it's used in movies and TV shows to like direct the audience to want people to be together. So, if anything, I wonder if that's what the actors were doing to try to enhance that relationship. But it took a turn for you. So they go to, yeah, they go, as you mentioned, they go to a club called Meow Mix, which was a real club in New York City, a real lesbian bar or club that had music. Um, Closed in 2004, though. And Holden runs up to Alyssa and says hi, and they start bonding over their New Jersey roots. And this is like a bunch of Clerks references, one after another. Like they reference characters from the previous movies, which is really funny if you've seen Clerks. Later, we see, of course, Guinevere Turner, co-writer and star of Go Fish, as the MC who invites Alyssa on stage. And Alyssa dedicates a song for that someone special out there. And Holden is like so sure that this song (laughs) is being directed at him. He's got like this next scene is really hard to watch for me. Like it's I feel so bad for him. Ed, do you want to tell about the song a little bit or like?
0: Yeah, as we were researching this, I found out that Joey Lauren Adams wrote the song that she sings in this movie as a country song, but it was adjusted for a more rock feel for this movie. And I'm sad that it's not like really out there because the song is such a banger. It's such a good song. I was hoping to find it like on Spotify or something, and I I, I could not. But I really loved that scene of her on stage singing that song.
1: Really? I'm not a huge fan of that song, but I'm glad that, like, yeah, you really like it, huh?
0: I love that song.
1: <laughs> I thought it
2: was, like, another... Like, I swore that I had heard that song before. Like, even watching it, like, last night, I was like, what is it, What is this song? But that's interesting that, yeah, that was an it, original song by her.
0: It feels very much like a song that should exist. The way that they did it for this movie, it kind of... Has a weird Joan Jett slash Kathleen Hanna vibe to it.
1: Are you wanting to bust out any of it, Ed? You said you, <sighs> <were. laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I, I,
0: I mean, I, I will absolutely demonstrate how aptly my podcast is named. But the song starts out so simply and basically a cappella, So I feel like doing the beginning part of it would not be that bad. But I'm feeling nothing but all alone. Just missing someone I don't even know. But until I find them, I'll wait patiently. Just feeling nothing inside of me. Yay.
1: (laughs) I don't think it was sung poorly. I think you did a good job.
2: Wow, that was great. That was better than the movie. Lies, (laughs)
0: Lies,
1: <laughs> and then later she's like breaks it out a little more. Like I want to feel passion, I want to feel pain, I want to. I have no idea what the rest goes. And my singing was no, that was good. I was
2: like, yeah, yep, yep, that's it. I that want to
0: weep at the sound of your name. <laughs> Do you know the rest? <laughs> come make me laugh or come make me cry. Just make me feel
1: alive, alive. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Every rom com, karaoke. Yay. Well, sort of karaoke. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So while the singing is going on, Holden is just doing the the dorkiest, most horrible dance. Like, he's just like doing, he's like biting his lip and he's like got his hand on his chest and he's like swaying back and forth. Like, dude, (laughs) Ben Affleck was really willing to embarrass himself in this movie. I love it.
2: I mean, if, like, if that was a real moment where she was singing to him, she would be stoked that he was, like, that into it. Like, yes, he's reciprocating, like, what I'm trying to get out there. So I don't know. I thought it was a cute scene. I didn't think it was embarrassing Okay, okay. Him. It's embarrassing because then there's, like, the, you know, the reveal that it's not for him. But I don't know. I thought it was cute.
1: Yeah, the reveal being she kind of jumps down off the stage. And does she, like, crook her finger, too, and, like, come back? Yeah, near? she's like, yeah. And this, we see this girl who just showed up next to Ben Affleck during the scene, runs up to her, and they kiss. And Banky, who's been irritated the whole time they've been at this club, sees them kiss. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he is so happy. and he gets the, Jason Lee gets the biggest smile on his face and starts clapping. There's something infectious about a Jason Lee smile, even if I don't like his character in something.
0: He has a great face and a great smile. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also, that woman that she hooks up with was Jason Lee's ex-wife
1: oh, oh wait, wait were they exes at the time or no no were they-, they
0: were i believe they were still married at the time
1: okay okay yeah. okay that's hilarious and then like after he watches them making out he looks around at the other women in the club and then he kind of does this like oh <laughs> like, moment it's like
2: like we're in a lesbian bar which is kind of funny like how would you not realize <laughs> that right away right because there's like no other men in the club except for hooper who's the bartender and then them oh is he the bartender
0: yeah hooper was the bartender okay 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 but serena you would be surprised when we were undergrads my friend shane and i took a friend of ours to a gay club in pittsburgh and i don't know if we explicitly told him it was a gay club but he wanted to go clubbing because he liked dancing and we're like yeah sure and at one point during the night this sweet boy from lancaster came up to me and said this is such a weird place. The guys are so friendly, but none of the girls will talk to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. I guess guys can be that clueless. Okay.
0: We certainly can. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> so after this revelation, um, Banky's very happy and Holden's very miserable. And we see Banky and Holden sit down with uh, Alyssa and, I don't think it's her girlfriend, but just the girl she's seeing right then at a table. And this scene is set up to be an homage to a scene in Jaws where the main characters are talking about the different scars they've gotten over a lifetime. Originally, apparently this was made for mall Rats. this scene. like It was tweaked, obviously, to fit Chasing Amy, but like that's why in Mallrats there's characters with names from Jaws, which... It's it's amazing to put together because when we were just rewatching Mallrats, I'm like, why do they all have Jaws names? (laughs) I was just like, I guess Kevin Smith just really likes Jaws. And I guess Kevin Smith does really like Jaws because this whole next scene is like, if you watch the two back to back, there's obviously differences. But like a lot of like the body language is the same, too, as the scene in Jaws. So it's kind of and apparently it was also like they designed the lighting and the booth they're sitting in to kind of mimic what a ship looks like. So I thought that was really awesome. And uh, I love a good homage scene anyway. So instead of talking about boat injuries or tough guy injuries, in this scene, they're talking about their sexual scars. So I'm gonna play a clip of the Jaws homage.
3: See that? Uh-huh. I got that from Nina Rollins. Sophomore year, I'm going down on her, right? Oh, and out of nowhere, her cat sure. jumps on her stomach and she does this big old pelvic thrust, cracks my tooth and sends it down my throat. I had to get a crown for the stub. I got that beat. I got that beat. Junior year, I'm going down on Cynthia Slater in her dorm room after we went club hopping. I'm totally drunk. And in the middle of it, I fall asleep right in her lap. She got so mad, she digs her heel into my back. Right there. That's permanent. All right. All right. See this? That's the farthest I can move my neck to the right. Again, sophomore year. I'm going out with Brandy Spinning, And for like six months, I'm going down on her right, not a damn thing's happening. So one night, I change her position or vary my lapping speed, and suddenly, it's a whole new world. She's moving around, convulsing, breathing heavy, and her legs are pressed up against my ears so tightly that I don't hear her father coming down. He grabs my hair and pulls me way back hard. Senior year, spring formal. I'm eating out Missy Kurt in her brother's car. She's like laying across the back seat, and I'm half hanging out, my knees on the ground. She's flailing around, and she... She knocks the parking brake off, the car starts rolling down the hill, and my left knee is cut up to shit, (laughs) like a kitty scissors glass cutting over paper dolls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and while uh, Banky and uh, Alyssa are having this conversation, Holden's just like stone-faced in the corner. And immediately after this, like, says, uh, we got to get home and beat traffic, even though it's, like, in the middle of the night. This is the really one of the only times you're going to see Alyssa and Banky bonding in this entire movie, though. It's also interesting that before this, like, discussion about, like, the different sexual injuries, like, Banky initially says that he doesn't go down on girls. But there's, like, a whole like bunch of stories about him going down on girls. So that was a little bit odd. But, like, he, he says something about how women don't give directions and Alyssa's like, I used to be like that, and now I'm I'm like an air traffic controller telling them where to go. And I feel like that's like a discussion I've definitely had with other women or with guys that I've been seeing about like how women will have kind of a like feel self conscious about um, cunnilingus or whatever, and like and and be reluctant to give directions sexually. Maybe that's not as much for the people growing up today, but I think when we were growing up, it was considered kind of almost weird or like aggressive if women were like being very assertive about what they wanted in bed i don't know do you think that's true serena or like
2: yeah i mean i this scene stuck out to me a lot more when i was younger but now it doesn't seem as uh like revolutionary but maybe just because now we have so much sex um and open talks about like female sexuality now so yeah
1: yeah i, I see where you're coming from But in terms of the homage to Jaws, I'm wondering if either of you related to the sex injuries. I can't say that I've had a sex injury, but anything anyone feels like sharing, there's no pressure to share.
0: I can't believe I'm going to share this on your podcast, (laughs) but I won't specify the time period, but let's just say that it was 20 years ago or more. And I was seeing a girl who went down on me, but I had a very long day and I fell asleep and I snore, which is usually a pretty good <laughs> giveaway that I've fallen asleep, but yeah. I was very relaxed. And she had some martial arts experience and she got mad and she hit me in the ribs and I did crack a rib.
1: Oh, oh wow. that hurts. Cracking a rib doesn't sound like it hurts, but I've cracked a rib and it hurts.
0: I was taped up for a while. Uh, I deserved it.
1: No, no.
0: <laughs> I couldn't even stay mad at it. I mean, I did. I did fall asleep at no. a very inopportune time.
1: If I were on Reddit, I would give you a not the asshole for that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 like, I mean, hurt feelings. Like, you know, maybe you deserved a, you know, like somebody to be like, hey, listen, like, give you a little scolding. But like, no, not an injury.
0: I don't think she meant to hit me that hard.
1: Wow. Well, yes. Okay. I'm sorry it happened to you. And nonetheless, <laughs> Serena, anything? I haven't got anything. I don't know. God, not, not that. No, I guess not. All right. So moving on, moving on. Um, so after this experience, you might think that Alyssa and Holden would not hang out with each other anymore, given Holden's like stony face, but in a somewhat improbable turn of events, Alyssa shows up at Holden's door and wants to hang out with him do you guys think that like this is a like realistic thing yes i do um because i mean they are in the
2: same genre the same field and they did have some connections so i could kind of see that and obviously they you know they were she was interested in him you know he was like a nice guy
1: yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Good. Good. You mean good. her?
2: You mean her showing up at his door as opposed to like calling him? Is that no. What
1: mean? I, I mean just like her bothering to like pursue a friendship with him, like when he's been so mopey. But like you know, I th- I think you made a case for it. So. All right. So then, um, Alyssa and Holding go to a park and they're standing on the swings. Um, and they're just like, which is totally realistic. I used to have tons of conversations on swings in my late teens and early twenties with people, and um, they're like having conversations about sexuality and this whole segment Holden's asking Alyssa a lot of kind of sort of what would be like ignorant questions, right? Like asking her why is she interested in girls and what do they do in bed? And like, is it really sex? You know what I'm saying? And like Kevin Smith said this section and some of the other sections where the characters are asking uh, Alyssa about her sexuality was inspired by his own brother, his older brother coming out as gay. And at that time, Kevin Smith asked his older brother a lot of questions, like, about what do you do in bed? Like, he wanted to know all about his brother's sexuality. I think some people have criticized this section for, like, why do we have to w- listen to these dudes say these ignorant things about, like, female lesbian sexuality? But, like, I think in a way, this is kind of, like, was kind of, like, a wholesome way for, like, a lot of guys who might never have been exposed to this stuff to learn about, like, you know. Yeah what Mm -hmm. homosexuality is all about like what girls like are doing in bed like to get rid of their ridiculous stereotypes like tongue fucking or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i think this goes back
2: to like what you said about how you know not necessarily like a bad person ends up saying like kind of bad things because because you kind of took it like she gave him like a safe space to like ask me these questions like you want to know so just ask me without feeling like embarrassed and i, I remember like i kind of went through that a little bit i ended up having a, a friendship with a transgender friend who was interested in me romantically and i didn't know he was transgender at the time and then he ended up like telling me and And then I asked a lot of really ignorant questions because I didn't I didn't know. And but he gave me like the safe space to to be ridiculous, like when in asking questions. And like, I think people are curious in that way. And and it's it's not like malicious. And like you said, I think that, you know, you just don't know, but you want to know, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a lot of times, if people don't learn things from person to person, they learn things from really bad sources like pornography, like that's a lot of times very inaccurate and not even aimed at the audiences it's like supposedly made about. or like I don't and like and there's good stuff there are good resources on the internet or in books, but like you have to be discerning to find out what are the accurate resources too. you know, sometimes yeah. getting information from a person if that person is willing to do that to be that safe space, like you're talking about is the best way to learn about people's sexuality, their identity, what they do, what they like, you know? But of course, approach people with care and make sure that they want to be asked questions first. Ed, do you have any comment or take on this particular issue? Or
0: I feel like as awful as some of the things that Holden asked were, I feel like he was coming from a good place. I don't think he was set up to look... As horrible as maybe it does now I'm trying to remember how I reacted to that In the 90s and let's face it That was a long time ago He he almost had like A childlike curiosity More than the kind of questions you would imagine A banky would ask
1: Yeah Yeah. I think like some of the questions, like, but some of the things though, I think people still hear today and I think lesbians especially still hear things like, well, you're still a virgin because like, like people associate sex has to be like penetration and penetration of a certain type. And, um, Alyssa calls him on that in this segment too. Like, you know, like you think of sex as penetration, but it's like more than that. And, um, and these are still things people talk about today.
0: I loved when she said with penetration, Emotional or physical, mm. and I thought that was a great line.
1: Um, and also there's another point where she, um, famously demonstrates the fisting and like how, um, women can provide just as much penetration as a man if they choose to. So that 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 left quite an impression at the time. I think I think that's the first time I actually learned what fisting was. Was actually watching this movie. I think I think the same. Yeah,
2: that 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 was the first time I'd ever knew what fisting was like I had no idea
1: yeah that that was
2: even possible or like was like something that people did
1: yeah so I think we all agree that like at least in the 90s this scene played out like is pretty much like you could understand like even if you weren't like ignorant at the level Holden was you could understand the questions he was asking yeah yeah and you felt that he was coming from a good place okay so After this scene, we then see a scene in a train station, and Holden is on the phone with Alyssa, and she convinces him to ditch a convention he's going to with Banky to hang out with her instead. And this is probably where we start to get a little bit of Banky and uh, antagonism towards Alyssa.
0: Absolutely. But at the same time, I kind of understand Banky's point of view here. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, his friend has thrown him over the side for another friend. Hmm. And that can that can be a complex thing, but I think it's just basically there to set up his reactions to some things later.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Holden does ditch this convention, and then we see um, him and Alyssa playing skee ball. Which there's another great skee ball scene in Dogma. It's a very Jersey Shore thing to do. I love skee ball personally.
0: Everyone loves skee ball. They have to. It's the best.
1: Do you love skee ball, Serena? um sure (laughs) (laughs) and um originally what's interesting is I watched the deleted scenes I don't know if you guys have seen them um in the skee-ball scene there's originally like um a really a thing I wish they hadn't cut out where Alyssa's sort of critiquing Banky's use of homophobic language and when Holden points out that her and Hooper used like gay slurs to talk about themselves she points out the difference between a community using the slur among themselves and people outsiders using that slur in a different way and especially in a derogatory way and like if he had left that in man it would have like probably like silenced a lot of current critics and i think it was like would have been way ahead of its time in talking about whether language is empowering or disempowering in a film you see that in like you know articles about racism and anti-racism or just in general, like about who owns language. Right. But you don't see that much just characters talking in a romantic comedy. I think that would have been really kind of cool. I wish he'd kept it in anyway. Mm -hmm. And then this leads then after the skee-ball scene where they're just talking together and playing together Um, there's a romantic montage, like the kind you will see in any romantic comedy, even though we have no reason to believe as an audience at this time that Holden and Alyssa are ever going to be anything more than friends. It is set up exactly like any romantic montage with like the nice music. And they're hanging out like in a park together. I don't remember all the things they're doing, but it's like shows that time is passing. Like Alyssa's having a birthday party. He made her a cake with like a naked lady on it. Like all (laughs) this different stuff is going by. And, Mm -hmm. um, it really works. They really do. These actors have great chemistry together. Like even when they're not talking, I think. Agreed. Yep. I was like, I want to be in their
2: magic friendship. (laughs) This this is like the, this is like the greatest friendship ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, we, we go from this romantic montage to Banky um, in serious jealous mode. And also just like really kind of critiquing the situation Holdings got himself in. He says, how was your pseudo date? And I have to say, I've used the term pseudo date to describe situations with guys in the, after that, watching this movie, like situations with guys that like I'm into and I know they're not into me, but I, but I feel like, like I feel date like towards them and they don't, I've called them pseudo dates before. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I th- I think we've all been there.
1: Yeah, Yeah. But Banky, Banky points out actually some pretty like, like, what you would normally be, like, just home truths to him, too, though. He's like, hey, like, this girl is not gonna sleep with you. This girl, like, you're, like, going after something you can't have. What are you doing? Like, if he did it with less offensive language, I think Banky would be, like, kind of normally, like, a hero here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's definitely coming across as, like,
2: the voice of reason um, in this situation, because for all intents and purposes, like, this is a... a he's gonna... Holden's going to fail at this
1: task or whatever. Um,
2: Or he's going to get himself hurt. Or he's
1: going to get himself hurt. Even if he's not intentionally going or consciously going after Alyssa, he's setting himself up maybe to feel hurt. And Banky's trying to save him from that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And he comes
2: across as being like a good friend at that time. And, and like their history as well, like how well he knows him, how well um, Banky knows Holden and like how he does this, you know, he kind of chases the unicorn, And always needs a challenge in his life. And this is what he does. Mm. Um, So I think it shows like the richness and the longevity of their friendship and relationship.
1: Yeah. But where Binky loses your sympathy is he's um, using like Dyke as a slur, right? Like he's using that language and he makes this ridiculous cartoon about how like about saying that like a, a lesbian who loves men and who's friendly is like a myth, like a fantasy. And he's he's trying to, he's really saying like just ugly things about Alyssa. And so he loses your sympathy, but like if you really think about it, like normally the guy telling you that you shouldn't be pursuing a, a lesbian romantically would be the guy who's right, <laughs> like in, a, in any other movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Um. so
2: all all of this is building up to this scene where so we already know that Holden is in love with Alyssa he said this to Banky previously and it it all leads up to the scene where they are driving in the car and previously they were at a diner and there's this this elaborate scene where she um, haggles with the manager of the restaurant uh, for this this picture of a boat on a lake. And she ends up getting the picture. And then he asks her in the car, like, what are you going to do with this picture? And she's like, well, I'm going to give it to you. And it's going to be the the showing of our friendship. And, you know, all of our time spent together and how much you mean to me, which is kind of a romantic thing to say, I thought, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the car, uh, this is when holding can't take it anymore and he pulls over the car and she's like why are you pulling over and he goes into this lovely monologue which i guess we're gonna do now
0: i love you and not not in a friendly way although i think we're great friends and not in a misplaced affection puppy dog way although i'm sure that's what you'll call it i love you very very simple very truly you are the epitome of everything i have ever looked for in another human being and i know that you think of me as just a friend and crossing that line is the furthest thing from an option you would ever consider but i had to say it i just i can't take this anymore Alyssa. there isn't another soul on this fucking planet who has ever made me half the person i am when i'm with you and I would risk this friendship for the chance to take it to the next plateau.
2: I think this scene, like for me, I, it's almost like you fall in love with Holden at that point. At least I did. Mm, I was like, Oh, yeah. this is so like, cause he's like almost like kind of crying. Like there's just so much emotion in it yeah. and you're like, Oh, this guy is in it. Like he is in love. Like, so this is what I think, you know, Ben Affleck is a great actor, Because he's able to portray such, you know, all that emotion that I think most people have felt uh, Mm -hmm. when you are in love with someone or in love with someone that you're pouring your heart out to and you're not sure if they're going to reciprocate.
1: Yeah, this I I think this scene is probably partly responsible for like the amount of time I waste on unrequited love because like what happens next? but. This is, I identify with it because I've had so many experiences of unrequited love in my life. And like, I felt what Holden's feeling. And this scene really comes across. It really gets you. Even though like, not if you didn't know what was going to happen next in the movie, this is kind of an obnoxious thing to say to a lesbian. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's saying, I don't even, I'm going to willing to risk our friendship even. So it's like, she's been saying, oh, here's something to represent our beautiful friendship. And he's like, I'm willing to throw it all away. And (laughs) yeah. If the movie didn't turn out as it did, like, man, that sucks.
0: There's different ways he could have phrased this where it wouldn't have been as obnoxious with that. You know, he could have been like, hey, I love you. And that's my problem, not yours. Mm. You know, that's an option. But that obviously doesn't fit into this film.
1: Yeah. And also, yeah, I think it's just true, though, too. Like, I think sometimes when we are like when we feel in love with people it isn't always selfless and it isn't always perfect love. It's sometimes selfish. And it's like, we can get self-absorbed and involved in our own experience our projection of what the other person is, especially when we're younger, you know? So I think that's part of what rings so true about this speech that it's not perfect, you know? Very much. Okay. So Alyssa is totally pissed at this point and she gets out of the car and it's raining importantly, and it's nighttime, but she's not even going to stay in the car with him. She's going to run away and he kind of follows her, and he's he's trying to like convince her that like it could work. And she's yelling at him like I I like women. Like what are you even talking about? Are you are you stupid? I I don't remember the exact dialogue she uses, but that's basically the point she's trying to get across. And she tells yeah. him to go home, and she's gonna she's gonna walk off in the rain on her own. Yeah. So she he gets, like, she starts hitchhiking. She starts hitchhiking. He's like, what are you doing? You're gonna hitchhike? Yeah. And he gets all the way back to his car. And then the moment the movie changes, like she runs back towards him, we don't even see like we don't even see her running. We just see Ben Affleck standing there. And when she gets to him, we see that point where she's got launched herself at him, and they start kissing like very passionately in the rain. Everything anybody ever wants in a rom com, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And I remember like, I didn't know too much about like the trailer didn't give away what happened in the movie. So I didn't know they were going to hook up. So I remember like being legitimately shocked when I first saw this movie, just being like, Whoa, what, what just happened? <laughs> Did you guys already know when you saw the movie?
0: I feel like it was set up that this was bound to happen. Okay. I think they give you enough between the, the, the friendship romance montage and all of that. It's clearly, I think, where the movie was going. I didn't Hmm. find it that surprising on initial viewing.
1: I just was like, so like, I was just like, so with Alyssa, like, hey, like, she's a lesbian. Like, what are you even thinking? Like, that I was just like shocked that like, I was kind of shocked that a movie would like imply that a lesbian would change her sexuality to be with a man kind of. And I guess it's more complicated. We find out later in the movie, but like still anyway, that was the experience I had at that time. But I was also rooting for them to get together. So it was a weird feeling of like, hey, wait, but like also, oh, good. Do either of you feel any discomfort with it when they hooked up, like initially or like?
2: Well, more in the fact that you kind of knew someone was going to get hurt, you know, Mm. like you already know, like, oh, this isn't going to bode well, you
1: know. I didn't know that. I thought once they hooked up, I was like, oh, yeah, they're going to be fine.
0: (laughs) oh jen
1: you're kidding
0: i know (laughs) bless your heart
2: (laughs) um yeah i don't know i it it obviously moves the movie along like i i don't know where all this where else this movie could have gone if you know she didn't reciprocate Mm -hmm. um his affection so like where where would that have gone he just would have literally been chasing Alyssa you know like trying to convince her to be with him like I don't know
1: Hmm, that's interesting yeah like yeah what would it then be about yeah all right so we see this passionate kissing scene and then we see them like in a kind of morning after scene but we see the morning after from Banky's perspective he's kind of walking into their office or whatever and comes up the stairs and he sees Alyssa and Holden in each other's arms on the couch and Alyssa like is shown to be like just wearing boxers, but we don't see any actual skin there. So as they said in the commentary, tastefully done. Yes, yes. (laughs) Holden and Alyssa still seem very happy together, like really into each other. But um, Holden goes downstairs to sit on the stoop and talk to Banky about this. And Banky's reaction is that like, man, this is not going to end well for you. You are too conservative for this.
0: I feel like he's probably right too, you know, from, from what he knows at that time. Because he and Holden clearly have some kind of sheltered life.
1: So there's a, there's a bunch of different scenes here. Um, one scene that's important to mention is Alyssa goes to meet a group of her friends who you know are probably also lesbians, and she's they're helping her like release her comic, like send her comic out, and they're kind of talking to her about like her new relationship, and Alyssa is very carefully avoiding using. The, the word he to describe, uh, Holden and they accuse her of playing quote, the pronoun game, which, Ed, I think you had a, a note about that.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, it, I mean, the pronoun game line feels very different today than it did then. I'm not saying that there weren't people with gender identity and transgender things going on in the nineties, but the talk about pronouns, just rings really differently in 2022 than it did in the 90s. So I found that an interesting connection between queer life then and queer life now.
1: Yeah, like the pronoun game then was like you would hide, if you weren't out to people, you would like hide the identity of your significant other um, by being vague, using they, something like that. Um, if you were in a circle that wasn't friendly to like to homosexual lifestyles, basically. Yeah.
0: Or heterosexual ones in this case.
1: Oh, yeah. Or heterosexual ones in this case. Yeah. And um, there was apparently some criticism about this scene, like, oh, why would her friends all be like on her about dating a guy? But like, that's weird to me because there's actually a scene in Go Fish, which was written and directed by lesbian women, which is very much like this, where the women are yelling at this bisexual woman for like, or sorry, yelling at this woman who identifies as a lesbian for having slept with a guy like on one occasion. And kind of accusing her of not being a real lesbian, of bringing disease into their community, of all kinds of things. So I think this was like a real thing. It must have been either that or, it, you know. I'm it, sure it's, I'm sure it still is.
0: It, it very much still is. Uh, you know, biphobia is present in so many communities. I mean, think of this like, as a person who identifies as bisexual, it's highly possible that somebody who is female might not date me mm-hmm. because of that. At the same time, I might not be gay enough for a guy.
1: Yeah, like there's all kinds of like different stereotypes people definitely have about bisexual people that like, you know, they're not gonna take the relationship seriously enough, or that they're inevitably gonna want non-monogamous relationships, which is not the case at all. Like all kinds of things. So I think it's a very accurate scene. I do feel it's kind of a shame though that we don't see Alyssa having close female friends in the movie who stick by her. That's I mean, maybe it would have been added a little too much stuff to the movie, but still. Yeah, I
2: do. I found it weird, too, that not once is the word bisexual used in this entire movie. She never at not at one point does anyone refer to her or she refers to herself as being bisexual um, so
1: so one thing i wanted to say about that is the scene in go fish they actually tell the woman like who's being yelled at for sleeping with a man that you're a bisexual why don't you just call yourself that but that woman in that scene in go fish she does not identify as bisexual like she considers herself a lesbian and like it sort of, that made me think about my own life because like i am a little bit bisexual i guess but like i mostly just say i'm straight these days or like identify more as straight these days because it's been a very long time since i've been you know, with a woman at all. And so I guess like there's places where you can be so little, such a little bit bisexual that you don't really identify with that label or that you feel like it would be false to identify with that label. So I think a person could be like mostly a lesbian and call themselves a lesbian. I think that would be fine. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. But she was pretty bisexual like in this. and, And then we learned later on, I mean, she was having a full on relationship with a man, you know? Like this wasn't yeah. like a one-time hookup, you know? Like I'm pretty sure that's what the that term means, right?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to I wanted to say though that like I think like there are cases though too where people could be like like that's not a label they choose for themselves, you know what I mean? Like like yeah. they view themselves as like mostly this one thing, so and that's the community they feel they belong to, or where and, they and where their interests mostly what, lie.
2: This is what ages this movie. Mm-hmm is that it, it's never spoken of. And now, I mean, a, ma- a majority of people I meet say that they're bisexual in really? some form. Yeah. And in some way or some form, or at least agree to there being a spectrum hmm. that that people fall into. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It, I Not to say that it was like a missed opportunity, but it, I don't know. It just, it was... It just was strange to me that that like never that word was never used.
1: Yeah. So uh, in terms of then Alyssa's sexuality, Holden actually gets a little bit insecure about Alyssa's interest in him. And um, if if you guys don't mind, we could do like an every rom com theater for this. I do. You, you have a strong desire to play Alyssa Serena, otherwise I can do it. I can. I can do it. All right. And uh, do you want to reprise Holden, or should I do Holden? <laughs>
0: I'm, uh, I would like to hear you do Holden.
1: Okay. So, so first of all, Holden starts the scene by saying, why me? And there's a little bit of joking back and forth and then Holden and Alyssa get a little more serious and we start a little scene here. Well, I'm a guy and you're attracted to girls. I see you've been taking notes.
2: Historically. Yes, it's true. Then why this? Well, I've given that a lot of thought, you know. Now that I've been ostracized by my friends, I've had plenty of time to think about it. And what I've come up with is really simple. I came to this on my own terms. You know, I didn't just heed what I was taught. Men, women should be together. It's the natural way, that kind of thing. I'm not with you because of what family, society, life tried to instill in me from day one. The way the world is, how seldom it is that you meet that one person who just gets you. It's so rare. My parents didn't really have it. There's no example set for me in the realm of male-female relationships. And to cut oneself off from finding that person to immediately half your options by eliminating the possibility of finding that one person within your own gender, that just seems stupid to me. So I didn't. But then you came along. You, the one least likely. I mean, you were a guy. I still am. And while I was falling for you, I put a ceiling on that because you were a guy. Until I remembered why I opened the door to women in the first place. To not limit the likelihood of finding that one person who could compliment me so completely. So here we are. I was thorough when I looked for you. And I just feel justified lying in your arms because I got here on my own terms and I have no question about some place I didn't look. And for me, that makes all the difference.
1: End scene. Yeah. That's like a, I think that's a really moving speech and I think it does a lot of work to the audience to help them understand like how this character made this transformation. So like, um, Ed, you said that you feel like you've went through like an experience where you were kind of like, figuring out your own sexuality and stuff like does this resonate with you this speech or like i uh
0: i very much identify with the speech although i know things change with it later and we find out more information but that's my entire take on on love in general is you don't know who you will find that you fall in love with and it could be any variety of people and why would you close yourself off from that
1: Mm -hmm. i like i i partly agree with you at the same time i do feel like a lot of people's um, sexuality is pretty hardwired. It's like I said, like I'm, I'm very open to like being with women, and yet I've only ever like been involved with like two women it's very rare that I even find a woman attractive enough to like consider like it's, but men, I'm attracted to so many men all the time. It's ridiculous. Like, um, I like, so I think there is like a, and I don't, cause I never grew up with a religion either. And I didn't grow up with as much like heteronormativity as some people do, where they feel like it's like against God or something to be homosexual. So I feel like I've always been very open yet at the same time, there's just some sort of hardwired urge. Mostly directed towards men, so I do think there are, though, a lot of people who are much more fluid and able to fall in love where they will. I don't know. That's my take.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah, but for you, but for you, it's been more of an experience for you where it's like you can be more able to like see people like just as people. I guess you're saying. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah. I mean, by and large, historically, I've I've certainly dated more women than men. Uh, but as far as hooking up, I've always been an equal opportunity,
1: <laughs> not employer.
0: <partner>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> equal opportunity partner.
1: Yes. Sorry, I shouldn't make light of it, but yeah, that's that's what you finish your mind finishes it with. Anyway, so now we're going to come to the spoiler section. So if you have not seen Chasing Amy, um, please like bow out now if you don't want to be spoiled. All right. So this is the part of the movie where everything kind of goes to shit. Um, Banky finds Alyssa's yearbook, and we hear a story about what Alyssa was up to in high school, told from the viewpoint of a character named Coey. And I'm not going to put a recording of the story here, but what it amounts to is that Alyssa was at a guy's house one day, and the guy and his friend were like messing around with her. All of a sudden, one of them took his dick out, and instead of reacting in fear or shock, Alyssa started giving him head. And then the other friend started having sex with her at the same time. And she earned the nickname finger Cups for this. And like, I don't, I didn't think of it this way when I was watching it in the nineties, but when I heard the guy Coe tell the story now, um, af- in the me too, after the me too era, like immediately, like, I'm like, if I had watched this now, I'd be like, Oh, like, how do we even know this wasn't like a sexual assault? You know what I'm saying, right. like
2: because like no, I had like- the same reaction. I had the same reaction watching it. I was like, "Oh man, this is like, um, yeah, this is like a sexual assault story." Or like, what's her perspective of it? Like, how exactly? Would she- how would she look at this story you know
1: yeah like um, yeah and it's ne- very much not a sexual assault in the movie like like she claims it as something she wanted to do but like if i now heard a story like that i would not immediately jump to oh yeah that's totally something this girl wanted to do i'd be like did that yeah, girl like to do all that? of a sudden you're hanging out with
2: your friends and y- you get an unsolicited dick in your face like that's like not that's like not sexy time you know what i mean that's like horrible
1: yeah, like for mo- for a lot of women. I'm not going to say for most women, but for a lot of women, it would be yeah. horrible. So yeah. I'm just saying like the the fact that now Banky immediately jumps to like not only believing this story, but never doubting for a minute that this is like the, the event, the version of what happened now comes off really differently. Hmm. So Holden hears this story. And initially he kind of says, no, this couldn't be true. She's a lesbian. She's never even been with a man. But you can tell that he's rattled, that he also believes it at the same time, like it's got to him. And um, Banky, meanwhile, is saying terrible things about Alyssa, insulting her, accusing her of being a germ farm, potentially, and having STDs and, like, being dirty, all that wonderful slut shaming. Um, and Holden gets really mad at Banky for this, like, very mad at this, but now it's in his mind. And he's, you see him in a scene with Hooper um, at a, like, CD store or something, like, shopping for CDs. And Hooper basically tells him to chill out. And like when when Holden's like, but having sex with multiple partners, Hooper's like, ooh, oh, like he's like pretending to be shocked. I love that. Hooper is such a great character. Yeah. So basically, like Holden's got this on his mind, even though Hooper tells him to chill and that and like to like let it go, he can't let it go. And this all culminates in Holden and Alyssa at a hockey game. And rather than Holden just like asking Alyssa like in private about this thing they heard, He starts basically interrogating Alyssa, trying to get her to give him the information, basically in a roundabout way.
0: It was so passive aggressive. He could have been more direct. He could have been more open. He could have done it privately. But the way that he does it, the way that he's fishing, it's just insidious.
1: Yeah. Like, I think it's like, I can't remember exactly what he says, but like, did you ever know anybody named Rick Darris or like, and, and, she, and she's like, oh, yeah, Rick dares. And she
2: knows immediately like what he's getting. I was like, she's like, oh, oh, yeah. What was and what was the other guy's name? Oh, what was his name? And then she came up with it. And you could just like see his face like, oh, I knew it. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is actually a terrible scene. I mean, it's, not, it's a great scene because it, their acting is impeccable. Her acting is great um, as well. But yeah, this is definitely the beginning of the end of their honeymoon period i guess you could say
1: well their relationship really i mean like yeah yeah, that's true yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) um one note um of interest to people who are into easter eggs the guy who played rick darris in clerks is actually sitting next to holden in the hockey scene so oh really yeah they said that in the commentary so like real like super fans might be like oh my god there's rick darris right there (laughs) like Anyway, that's not super important um, compared to the emotional impact of this scene, though. And finally, like Holden actually brings up the name Finger Cuffs. And she is just like she looks like she's been slapped, basically. Like, why are you bringing this up, basically? And then he continues to badger her until she like yells out in the middle of the hockey game something like I blew somebody while somebody else fucked me. She yells that in the middle of the hockey game. And you get one of those Kevin Smith scenes where everybody's reacting to somebody saying something shocking. She runs out and Holden follows her. And yeah, it's just a brutal scene. like to watch a woman being badgered like that. I'm going to say something mm-hmm. to make me sound like
2: an asshole. Let's just say that or unpopular. I, I don't have that much sympathy for her in this, in this oh, scene. I mean, count. I get, I get it and like I – yeah, I don't – we all have a past but I feel like she's been dishonest with him from the beginning and I feel like that – like the trust is lost with him. If she had just said up front that I I had been with guys before, which is what this whole thing is, Hmm. like – a, maybe their relationship wouldn't have even happened because he, then he wouldn't feel like, quote unquote, Marco fucking Polo, which is what Hooper says to him when it comes to sex, thinking that Holden was the first guy that she had ever been with. So if she would just been honest with him from the beginning, I don't know. I get where he's coming from. Like, there, there's definitely some trust. of I'm not saying that you need to tell your partner every single thing, but I feel like their relationship was kind of based on the fact that she was a lesbian and never had been with a guy before.
1: Hmm. But wouldn't that be a pretty shallow basis for a relationship though? <laughs> like, that, I mean, I've absolutely. been in shallower. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the thing with that is, I, I definitely see your point. Uh, I, I believe in being open and honest in relationships, and I think that is a crucial foundation for a long-term one. At the same time, the fact that Holden is hurt doesn't give him the right to be hurtful, which I know is the default reaction. I certainly have been hurtful in situations where I was hurt before, but he does not come off looking very good in this scene.
1: Yeah. It's venue. It's how he goes about it. Like if he like, yeah, like we were saying before, if he just set done this in private and asked her directly, then you don't get a very dramatic scene in a movie, of course, but that's true. (laughs) True, True. True.
2: I agree. I I mean, I agree with all that, but I, I do see, like, I don't see think of him as being like a hundred percent the bad guy. Yeah. yeah, I I definitely feel for him. I definitely feel like, again, I'm going to go back to like the whole setup there. There's something fishy with her. She just doesn't come across to me as being like completely truthful or honest getting into this relationship.
1: I can understand like, like wanting to have a sense of trust. Like I can understand that. I also though, sort of feel like, what does anyone's sexual past, like, as long as they've, you know, taken sexual, you know, they've been tested for STDs and you both agree, if you both agreed to that, as long as you both like shown each other your health records, what else does someone's sexual past really have to do with your sexual present with that person in a way? Like, that's how i kind of feel about it. Like, it doesn't actually have like any, you know, bearing on your relationship as long as like, you know, you're treating each other well in the present. I don't know. I- I mean, I
2: disagree. Like in in a in a perfect world, if we were perfect people, sure. But I mean, I'm I'm not like that, you know. Like I'm, I I sympathize with Holden in this scene for sure. And and I, I don't know. I think it does matter. I think, and again, that's probably not the like kosher thing to say or the popular thing to say. But
1: no, that's okay. Um,
2: it matters to people, and and I think a scene like this kind of proves that not proves it but you know what i mean
1: so they get to this next scene they're in the parking lot and this kind of goes to what you're saying like holden's having the same kind of thing like he's having trust issues and he's having like um issues with her pat sexual past um and they're fighting in this parking lot and i definitely am with with uh, alyssa on this part like i feel like i i would i would definitely tell my partners like about my past for sure because like i'm just that kind of person i'm very open with people but at the same time, I really sympathize, especially as a woman, like, I think we're judged very differently for what we do sexually. Like, she kind of points it out to him, like, Did, didn't you have sex, like, in high school? And, like, and also, like, why does he have a problem with her sleeping with men specifically when she he already knows that she slept with, I think she says, all the women in New York City? Like, I feel like there's, like, a thing going on with, like, the male ego being wounded here and male insecurity which is like kind of what kevin smith said the movie was about male insecurity rather than just being about trust and openness in this case but Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i mean i agree but i I mean i agree with that but i also like just that first scene like when they're like at the park and he's asking her like the lesbian questions like she flat out tells him that he she was never she's never been with a man like that's that's a straight up lie
0: in Alyssa's defense, I read that initial part as different. I felt that was her just, again, putting that barrier up to remind Holden that she identifies as gay. Don't fall in love with me. I yeah. only like women.
1: Yeah, because if she, had, if she had said, like, oh, I did sleep with a guy once, like, that would encourage that kind of guy. Or maybe not Holden, but, like, some kinds of guys to just press and press and press, right? And if, and if dating men is not something she's interested in anymore, that's going to be annoying or going to give him false hope. All right. So they're yelling at each other in the parking lot. Alyssa's defending herself, like just talking about she was an experimental girl. She chose to have these sexual experiences. It didn't end up being what she wanted. She wanted to be with him. And she tries to apologize to him actually, and then embrace him, but he actually pushes her away. And he says, I want us to be something we never can. And she's like, what? He says, a normal couple. Then, she, like, he leaves and she's left in the parking lot and she just yells, fuck, really loud. Anyway, it's really pretty emotional and kind of devastating if you were rooting for that couple.
0: So, after that, we find Holden in a diner where he meets Jay and Silent Bob, where he pays them their money for being inspirations for Blunt Man and Chronic, getting their license rights money. <laughs> Jay mocks the comic saying snoochie boochies. Who the fuck talks like that? Which was apparently Smith's way of commenting on Mallrats. rats. He said, I felt I had sold out Jay and silent Bob. So I was consciously trying to undo that and win their integrity back. Silent Bob tells the chasing Amy story that the movie's title comes from. He had forgotten the monologue that he had for that day. So he ad libbed the entire thing in this scene and he tells a story about a girl that Silent Bob was seeing named Amy, who had threesomes with her ex that he found intimidating. And he admits he wasn't disgusted with her. He was afraid. And he implies that, like, all his relationships from there on out, he's just kind of chasing Amy, chasing that feeling that he had with her that he knew he screwed up and lost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is a really long monologue, too, like and it's interrupted frequently by Jay, Jay played by Jason Mewes, kind of interjecting silly things and comedy and so forth. And, but you can see it really has an effect on Holden, although maybe not the effect Silent Bob intended it to have on Holden, as we find out in the next scene. I like it when Silent Bob speaks in all these um, Kevin Smith movies, when Kevin Smith himself speaks. I always look forward to it. And I think this is probably his best speech and maybe his longest in all of the movies.
0: It was certainly the longest speech he had done to that time. I don't know some of the more recent films if he had if he had spoke more in those, but it was nice to see. Like, I don't think there was a lot of integrity to Jay and Silent Bob before that, like in Clerks and Mallrats. I think they were really just comic relief and the occasional wisdom from Silent Bob. But here, I I don't think it was so much of winning their integrity back as it was a, a real honest moment in the film.
1: Yeah. And it's a guy kind of like a a straight guy telling another straight guy to like, uh, get your shit together, basically. Which quite
0: frankly, we need more of.
1: (laughs) And so, um, yeah, but holding gets a weird message from this speech by, uh, Silo Bob, um, instead of just like, you know, saying, I'm sorry to Alyssa and like, uh, trying to get her back and like in a normal way that normal people would do. Um, he invites, banky and Alyssa to his house and you see like wine glasses set up and candles set up and he i this just this scene came out of nowhere for me when i watched this movie he says that the only way they can solve the situation is if they all have a threesome together because apparently like um it'll help banky get over his jealousy of Alyssa, and it'll help banky with his unresolved uh homosexual longings towards Holden which have been sort of like suggested throughout the film but here Holden's like saying that this is a thing that exists and it'll give uh Holden some more sexual experience so he won't be intimidated and Alyssa will be part of it so it'll bond them together and when 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 he made this speech like man Ben Affleck really had to sell this because even with Ben Affleck really selling this like this came out of left field for me in this movie <laughs> for sure yeah, do you remember the first time you saw this? Like, do you remember re-
2: your reaction to it? Uh, no, I don't. But I mean, I had like a... Because I I didn't really remember the movie that well. So when this came up, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this has just got bad written all over it. Like, it's just... Ugh, yeah.
0: This is the cringe scene for me. I felt secondhand embarrassment for everyone involved. <laughs> hmm
2: mm-hmm. It was almost like... I. I mean, I don't know what the intention was. I mean, it's almost... It was almost like bad writing in some ways. It was like, they were just like, how do we wrap this up? Um, but it was just such a unlikely scenario. Like, who would think that that was a good idea? You know, like, Holden had always been seemed kind of like level-headed and smart. And this just seemed like the dumbest idea ever.
1: Yeah. He listened to silent Bob's uh, story and, and the part that he took away was not like that. You should make things right with your girl. It was the menage a trois. It was the threesomes. Like that's what stuck in his head. Apparently. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and, um, yeah. And he actually goes as far as to like kiss Banky, like to just be like, yes, we're going to get this out there in the open. And like, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, do you think there's anything to Banky having unresolved, like, uh, attraction to hold in?
0: I Actually, you know what? I do. Okay. I don't know if it's a sexual attraction, but there is something to be said about the romance of friendship. Yeah. And Banky certainly feels more for Holden than Mm. Banky is willing to admit. Mm. It might not be sexual. He might not want to fuck Holden. Yeah. But he definitely feels something that's more than just we're pals. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think like there's like so many like I think they almost want you to think that the the filmmakers are trying to set this up that like this is a thing that Banky sort of feels like um, even stuff earlier in the movie where he says he understands like gay guys, like people who just need dick. I'm just like, <laughs> do you now? Do you now? Anyway, I mean, he's using it there to like disparage lesbians and say that they can't really possibly be interested in each other. But still, like for him to say that, I'm like, OK, they're planting seeds, but. Anyway, but this is just such a bad idea. Like a threesome and under the best circumstances, okay, is not always a good idea. But under these circumstances, like I just, what is he thinking? This is like, this is proof that he doesn't have any experience really. Well, it also seems
2: like a very self-sabotaging like scene or thing for him to do. It's almost like he's, he just wants to get rid of everybody. He's like, if you guys go along with this, obviously this is just going to be bad across the board. That's what I almost kind of get from this. It's like, he's like, he's at this like breaking point where he almost just like wants it all to just go to hell. You know,
1: I never read it that way, but I think he honestly thinks this thing is going to work. And that's like, what's hilarious to me because like Alyssa rightly points out all the different things that can go wrong. Like she's like, Oh, I might moan differently if I were with Banky or like, you might always see me this way and you wouldn't like it. Like the way, like seeing me like this with another man or stuff like that. And like, let's just like a few of the things that can go wrong. Right. And so Alyssa basically doesn't give him a moment to like, think better of this instead of like, kind of like giving him a chance to like regret this and, and change his mind. She says something like, "Know this, I love you. I always will, but I'm not going to be your fucking whore. And she slaps him. And then she leaves and tells Banky he's yours again. So, there's no chance for Holden to think better of this. Like, Alyssa's. I'm surprised Alyssa showed up to this meeting at all. And then for him to suggest this threesome as if, like, you know, without consulting her, you know, yeah, that's just kind of an insult to her, I guess, at this point.
0: Everything in this movie would be made better, although less entertaining to watch, if people would just be open and honest with how they feel.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Did you guys find the scene believable, at least with these characters? Or.
0: It felt rushed, but it felt, it felt believable to who we've learned the characters to be.
1: It was almost
2: like the, almost like the, the worst of Holden like came out during this. That that's kind of what I saw.
1: Or at least maybe not the worst words that he's used, but just the worst ideas and kind of the most self-centered vision of him, of the relationship too. like, this is what I need. And then he's trying to say like, this is also what you need, but he's not really listening to what they need. Like, well, this is just basically told him in all the ways she could that she just wants to be with him. She's done experimenting, she's settling down and he just can't hear it. And then after Alyssa leaves, we see Banky also leave the room, probably in crushing embarrassment. And it's kind of implied that their friendship has suffered a blow as well. And one year later, we do indeed see that their friendship has suffered a blow. We see Banky sitting alone at his own table with a, with a new, is it just with Bluntman and Cromic or no, it's his new comic with his new comic. Mm -hmm.
0: Baby yeah.
1: Huey. Or not Baby er, Huey, no. Dave. Baby, baby Dave. Dave. <laughs>
0: baby Dave. Baby Huey is the duck, yeah.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, and he's Banky's at his own table now talking to a fan from the opening scene. And then we see that Banky sees Holden, who's shown up. And Holden and Banky are communicating entirely like with hand gestures at this point. But you can still understand kind of what they're saying.
0: Yeah, it was very, that across the room unspoken conversation. But yeah.
1: Yeah, and basically then Banky like points out to him that Alyssa is at the con as well. And so Holden goes over to Alyssa's table. And at first, before we see Holden go over, we see Alyssa at a table and she has a girlfriend who is played by Kevin Smith's sister in the movie. And the girlfriend gets up to go. The girlfriend doesn't really get comic Cons, she says to Alyssa. And while the girlfriend's gone, she and Holden have a talk. And the talk starts with Holden putting down a comic book on her table. We see the cover, Chasing Amy.
0: I thought I thought this was a perfect moment. It was awkward in the right way without being too awkward, you know, running to- into an ex after some time had passed. The other thing that I found really interesting is that every comic he has done in this movie has been something he got from Silent Bob, whether it was uh, <laughs> Blood Man and Chronic or Chasing Amy. So Holden still is not open enough to be himself.
1: That is interesting. And I guess like Holden is kind of Kevin Smith's self-insert character in the movie too. He said it's like his character is most like him. So I guess that also makes sense in a way since Silent Bob is also Kevin Smith. I don't know. And and Silent Bob is often the voice of the author in, in Kevin Smith's movies. Huh? I like that though. And they just, they kind of have just like little small talk. There's no like resolution to their relationship. The way Alyssa is looking at Holden through this conversation, though. For me, I always assumed that they would get back together. Like, for a few reasons. For one, because of the way she's looking at him. Two, because her girlfriend doesn't like comic cons. And three, because when her girlfriend comes back to the table and asks, who was that? Alyssa says, some guy I used to know. If you were really tight with your girlfriend, I think you'd be like, oh, that was my ex. You know what I mean? Yeah, because Alyssa's a liar. (laughs) Can we just
2: I, go back to that? She is untruthful.
0: I was going to say that she's already had experience with talking about her past messing with her current relationships. So I kind of <laughs> see her reticence.
1: Okay. 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 I see both of your points. I see both of your points, <laughs> but the way, the way they do the, those two looking at each other it reminds me of the way too they, they end other romantic movies where you're supposed to assume that the couple gets back together. And I guess in the commentary, um, they said they didn't want you to assume that. I don't know if they wanted you to assume the opposite either, but they didn't want you to assume that. But I'm sorry, Kevin Smith, I'm assuming it. Uh, Kevin Smith, or sorry, Ben Affleck and Joey Lauren Adams, they just acted the hell out of those longing gazes. So that's what it said to me.
2: What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, that I do not think they get back together. I think that, I I like that they don't get back together. I like that this is just a lesson relationship for them. You know, like, and obviously it's, it's a, a growing period for both of them specifically Holden. But isn't that what Kevin Smith said that this, this kind of was like yeah. when he wrote it, that this was kind of like a, a Valentine slash, what was the other word he used? Um, a Valentine apology. slash apology. apology. Yeah. So like, obviously like this was a, and we've all had relationships like that, you know, like they meant something to you, but you sure as hell aren't going to get back together with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 I get that.
0: I don't have an opinion on whether they get back together or not. something I never really considered. Hmm. I feel like it ends where it has to, and I don't need to know the future for these characters. This is the story I needed, and whatever happens beyond that, I mean, you've seen more than I have, and perhaps we do see these characters again later in other Kevin Smith movies, but I really have no idea where their lives would go from this point.
1: So I wanted to talk really quick about like, what are, who are the characters you relate to the most in this movie? Like, who do you resonate with?
0: For me, I mean, I resonate with all of them to some extent, all of the main ones, at least uh, I've been holding, I've lost myself in relationships. I've ruined them with different kind of insecurities, but insecurities nonetheless, I identify with Alyssa. It took me a long period of exploration to figure out my sexual and romantic identities, with Hooper, I've had to play different roles depending on the circumstances and Banky. I mean, neither of you have been at karaoke with me, but if you put me in a big social situation, I cover my vulnerabilities with obnoxiousness and outgoingness <laughs> and I have no filter. Okay. So I there, there's something in all four of them that I, that I certainly relate to.
1: Yeah. Serena, any characters you specifically respond to? I mean I
2: I think Holden in general I mean he was the the main character really that you're following but I, I don't know I think I had a lot of sympathy for him
1: yeah I think I think Alyssa is my strongest like character that I relate to and I think it's because I, I can really identify with being a woman who is being shamed for the choices she's made and sexually and like and but being at the same time, being like a person who's very warm and affectionate, like I love that Alyssa is portrayed that way, that a woman's allowed to have both of those aspects. And so I really relate to that still. Um, I do agree, Serena, that she should be more honest, but but I, I can understand. Like, I certainly like when I get involved with people, I'm honest with them, but I've certainly hid parts of my identity from people in order to not be judged. Um, and I also relate to Holden with the unrequited love. But I really like Hooper more and more every time I see this. And I wish it had actually been more of him in some ways. I don't know if it would have really served the film to have much more of him, but he was a great side character.
0: Yeah, he's a joy to watch.
1: And any favorite scenes or moments or bits of dialogue in the movie?
2: Just like the long monologues, like whether it was like Alyssa's monologue when she is telling Holden, like why she chose him or Holden's monologue about, you know, how he feels about her, about Alyssa or, uh, silent Bob talking about chasing Amy. I think those were just really well written and they held your attention and they, they were just, um, I don't know, good scenes, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: For me, uh, because it is a Kevin Smith film, my, Favorite scene is at the end, the unspoken conversation that Banky and Holden have across the convention. Just because there's Kevin Smith films tend to be very talky, and to express that much without actually saying something was a real sign of growth for me. And also, as a side note, we mentioned Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti earlier in this. They are the guys he's that Holden is standing behind as he and Banky are having that silent conversation.
1: Oh, that's cool. I think for me, like right now, like when I think of the scenes that give me joy, it's anything with Hooper in it. And it's like, I love (laughs) him. I love his character. I love the actor. So good. And then also the Jaws homage. I love that scene. Um, Yeah, I like nerdy stuff, I guess, like nerdy little homages to other movies and stuff like that. and, And talking about Star Wars and thinking about it in new ways. Okay, so finally, we're going to get to our double feature recommendations, and my first double feature recommendation is to watch Kevin Smith's first film, Clerks, um, from 1994, on the off chance that you are listening to this podcast, and you have not watched it already, because I'm sure a lot of people listening have. Um, It's just a great example, you know, of 90s Gen X filmmaking. It's not really a rom-com, which is why we're not covering it for this series, but I think it's an essential piece of understanding what it was like to grow up in the 90s and especially to work in retail. And it has so many great pop culture reference scenes and just funny moments. It has also got a lot of like crude humor. If that's not your thing, you might not be into it, but I I love that movie. And to me, it's kind of tied with Chasing Amy as my top Kevin Smith film. And actually a good triple feature would be to watch Clerks, then watch the next movie I'm recommending, Go Fish, from 1994, which the star of that movie, Guinevere Turner, was one of the inspirations for this movie. And it's a, Go Fish is a very different movie from Chasing Amy, but um, if you want sort of like an example of like lesbians telling their own story, expressing what it's like to be in their community from their perspective, I think you could not do better than to watch Go Fish from 1994. And also this is a film that Kevin Smith had clearly seen and admired because they were coming up at Sundance together. So it would be a good film to watch. Third, I'm gonna go ahead and recommend Jersey Girl, which I just watched yesterday. I had never seen that before, um, just because it's another um, Kevin Smith film where Ben Affleck is playing kind of a romantic lead. Although Jersey Girl is more of a family like comedy drama, and it was really sweet. I thought like I'd always heard it was like a bad movie, but then I watched it and I was like, no, this movie's really sweet. It made me cry at one point. Ben Affleck's playing opposite like Liv Tyler and like George Carlin. George Carlin is amazing as the dad in this, in my opinion. And I think it's just really worth watching. So it's it shows you a sweeter side of Kevin Smith. And it's like very not as referential as his other movies are. Although I do believe Matt Damon and Jason Lee show up at one point. And finally, I recommend watching Jaws from 1975. Not just because Jaws is an amazing movie, which if you haven't seen, you should definitely see, but because you can just fully appreciate the the homage in this movie if you watch Jaws. So there you have it.
2: Um, so the movies that I chose as a, for double features, um, I chose Days and Confused. It has both Ben Affleck and Joey Lauren Adams in it. Uh, it has a huge cast, but I think... Uh, I don't think they interact with each other but I think just during this era um, you see them a lot in movies But and I love this movie uh, and then I also chose Mallrats because there's a lot of references to Mallrats another Kevin Smith movie the one he made right before Chasing Amy wait can I ask you a question are you a fan of Mallrats then like I think I like it more than you guys do I, I it it holds some sort of weird nostalgia for me no I'm with you that right. um, I don't. Yeah, I like it. I I think it's
1: kind of cheesy, but it's I could watch it over and over again. And and you also get to see Ben Affleck and Jason Lee in a totally different relationship to each other in that movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I chose Dogma. I think Dogma might be my favorite Kevin Smith movie. Yeah. Um. I, I, it's just it's very clever and it's well written and again it has you know ben affleck in it as well so i mean that's a little tie in there so yeah those are my choices
1: yeah and just to in case anybody has never heard of dogma dogma is like a film that kind of is heavily about religion and especially catholic religion and has all kinds of like angels and like demons showing up and it's really out there and pretty fun i i agree dogma is a great movie
0: so mine are all centered around a semi-accidental theme, which is men being bad at relationships in mid-90s comedies. <laughs> uh, the first one is The Pompous of Love from 1995. It's one of those independent films that's too clever by half. It tries very much too hard, but it's about four guys and the problems that they have with their various relationships. It, it very much feels like... A writing exercise more than an actual film, but it always I've always had a soft spot in my heart for it. Second is one of my favorite independent films from the 90s, Kicking and Screaming, one of Noah Baumbach's earlier works. It's again one of those clever independent films, but it doesn't feel too clever by half. It has a very good emotional core and a semi-heartbreaking ending. And then finally, just because I felt like we needed to have some good queer love in this, uh, Jeffrey from 1995, which was a play. So the fact that it is too clever actually fits it. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking. It's about dating in the 90s in Manhattan when you're gay in the middle of an AIDS epidemic. Mm. Is it like And it's funnier than it sounds from that description? I promise you.
1: (laughs) So it is lighthearted. It's not like... um, It is.
0: I mean, it has moments of pathos, but it is a fairly lighthearted film. Yes. Okay.
1: Cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much, you guys. Thanks, Ed, again, for joining us. And a reminder, we can find your work at... You recommend the website, so...
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sungpoorly.com. That's where all episodes, blog posts, and merch are available.
1: Yeah. And speaking of merch, he's got some pretty sweet t-shirts on there. So you should check that out for sure. And um, remember to check out our podcast, EveryRomCom.com, and send us feedback if you like it. Feedback at EveryRomCom.com. We finished the Gen X series, and the next series we're going to be cooking up for you is the Weddings series. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for joining, guys. Goodbye. Bye.
0: Bye.